episode um i think this is gonna go in the main feed um we were supposed to be talking about songs by adrian lanker and um the carter by little wayne today and i have a motorcycle driving past very loudly um oh hi i'm autumn and i'm joined by reds (laughs) hey uh it it tends to be us but you never know (laughs) you never know uh, we were supposed to do a regular episode today. I've been kind of burning the candle at both ends with just, like, work being a lot and, um, you know, booking too many podcasts lately. Um, so it I happens, it happens. This is the I life have, of the podcaster. I've heard, I heard songs once and I enjoyed it, but I didn't really, like, closely listen and so I didn't feel comfortable doing the regular recording so we're just gonna do a bonus episode today and i'll put it in the main feed because i feel like it's been a minute since we put something out and yeah sick um oh so format for this episode um is that we're gonna do two listener questions that we never answered from last time we're gonna do um we're gonna talk about skyrim because you've been playing skyrim 
and then we're gonna really go in on basketball. I feel like basketball is gonna be the meat of the episode, but I just wanted to get everybody who doesn't care about basketball. I wanted you to have some content at the front. You know, <laughs> it's a select audience, but it's an audience that knows what it's in for. So, you know, if just so people know, um, we're recording this at 9 a.m. Central Time um, on June 21st, which means that, like, Seven I'm in mourning. I'm in mourning right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, for basketball reasons. Um, and, and we'll get to those when we get to that segment. Yes, yeah, like eight hours ago, our hearts were ripped out of our chests, so. Um, but <sighs> before we get to that. Questions. Uh, Nora says, I was listening to Waypoint Radio, and they were talking about consuming media and release order. When approaching a band or a musician, do you start at their first released work? Does that matter? Uh, Metric's album Grow Up and Blow Away was intended to be a debut, but some shenanigans with the record label mean it didn't come out until it was their third. Would you listen to that album first, or would you go by release order? Um... I hope you like Glass Beach, signed Nora, probably sitting two and a half feet uh, to Autumn's right as you hear this. Um, Is Nora currently sitting two and a half feet to your right? Or no, because I dropped her off at work before we hit record. Damn. Damn. You oh, hate to see thought it. it was gonna, I thought it was going to have some, this like great poetic circularity. I thought it was going to be great, but no. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so do, I... do you have thoughts on this? I've got like initial stab at what am I thinking on this? My thing, I usually tend to either Google or, like, ask a friend what's somebody's best album. Um, so, like, uh, like, if I was just getting into Kendrick Lamar for the first time, I would just ask you, like, what should I listen to? And you would say either Good Kid or To Pip a Butterfly, depending on how right you were deciding to be. Um, <laughs> uh, this and... is the unfortunate thing because we've established that I'm the damn liker. So, I well, that's tell you, wrong. <laughs> I would tell you to listen to Go Kid Mad City and then like decide if you liked the vibe and wanted to get like into the more like heady one. And that like the, the, yeah. that immediately gets into like how do you do that because it's consistently like a balance of the two. The, the earlier albums are sometimes like more accessible and whatever well i have have thoughts on this but yeah you you get the picture i so i will either do that or i will tend not to go to the first album but to the most recent thing um Mm -hmm. because in some ways in my head it's like well this is kind of the thing that if i was going to be a fan of this artist this is the thing to be excited about this is what i'm going to talk about with other fans this is um if I were going to go see this person live, this is what they're going to be playing mostly. Like, um, yeah, I tend to go listen to whatever's newest or if an artist is more established, go and just like try and find out like what do fans think is their best album? Um, I don't usually, um, cause especially in the 2010s, um, as music has gotten easier to like make, um, you know, in the words of Glass Beach, as the internet has democratized music making, um, <laughs> like we're gonna uh, is that phrase gonna become a bit for us? I hope it does. <laughs> it ought to. Um, like after Saint Cloud came out, and I really loved Saint Cloud, I decided to go listen to the first Waxahachie album. That thing is recorded like on the same boombox that the uh, the Mountain Goats were recording into in the fucking 90s. Like, that that first yep. Waxahachie album is 
rough just like recording quality wise um and that's true for a lot of young artists now where they just record something the first thing and it just sounds like shit um which is fine like i love that people are able to put out stuff that sounds like shit but i you know i would rather go listen to you know people as they hone their craft a little bit yeah um i i think that is a ent- entirely like important aspect to this is that like one thing that is going to be common across a lot of these sorts of fields whether it's games or movies or whatever particularly though stuff that is like pretty small scale creative endeavors is people's craft does improve over time people mm-hmm. tend to be better at the things that they are interested at getting good at five years down the road of developing those skills so sometimes it's very clear that people just have improved and like have yeah. more technical mastery and do more exciting impressive things over time um so it's interesting Nora, Nora came up with this one having listened to a Waypoint podcast and Waypoint is a podcast about video games yes and albums are not video games and the yes. thing the, there are a couple big things for me one is that albums are generally not narrative um mm-hmm. So, like, there is a sense in which um, playing a video game franchise... I mean, something interesting might be something like, I don't know, Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy is a video game series, which is not a series. It's a bunch of games that are all, like, tied together loosely by being on some crystal bullshit, right? Right. And Similar no... aesthetic trappings, but not the same exactly. narrative. Exactly. So, like, the question of what order should you play the final fantasy series is starts to become a like a different kind of balance of like what order should you play the deus ex games in mm-hmm. um because like there is a very strong sense in which i feel like i not made a mistake but like lost some of the vocabulary for getting the most out of human revolution by the making that my first deus ex having gone back and played the first one and been like Ah uh, shit, they were very much on some 90s-ish cyberpunk bullshit in this stuff. And mm-hmm. that's a vibe that I really click with. And before it's weird complication by like biotech narratives, it's still really good. And it's really mm-hmm. good in a way that like is not, un- I'm not going to say untainted, it's very still much a historical product, but it's like a more like core archetypal experience that I would have really liked to be my first impression of the franchise. Whereas in Final Fantasy, like, there is no right answer to, like, what's the starting point of your narrative. And I yeah. kind of feel like albums, in some way, like, are even further down that spectrum where, like, there is not even a necessary aesthetic continuity between any albums uh, by a particular artist. And also, like, you're not missing elements of the, like, process of building the aesthetic necessarily because, like, the if you listen to the... the I don't know who's a famous artist who's changed their aesthetic a lot of times. If you listen to Misty. Kid A, you don't. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah to some degree. Um, I was thinking more like uh, Mitski, still in the same like emotional space, maybe. In which yeah. case, that like understanding who she is as a songwriter is kind of a thing you could get from Puberty Two and then take to be the cowboy. Whereas like there's nothing about Radiohead's like most recent or album or like Kid A that necessarily tells you what sort of band they were at OK Computer. That's the sort of like radical difference between bits of your discography that like that you can get in al- in, in an artist's discography and it's just okay. In which case like the the release order thing is like sometimes good if you're interested in getting like a genealogy of 
how the artist developed, but like you only get snapshots of that in time. Um, and some of that is got from like newspaper articles more than it is from like listening to the album itself. Um, in which case, like, I'm very much an advocate of just doing, of chasing experiences. I think I've said yeah. a version of this in the podcast before, which is like, firstly, album listening or music listening in general is not a, like a completionist activity. It shouldn't be. It should be, for me at least, hunting cool and good experiences. Yes. Um, and in which case, like, the, the fact that Rate Your Music and similar websites, like, colour the way we encounter um, albums and put them up against each other is really shitty and unfortunate because like we cannot help but like categorize and organize in that sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and particularly put in like chronological like orderings which affect the way you approach the thing but like there is nothing about whether one album the third album has a 3.8 and a, the 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 first album has a 3.6 it's going to tell you which points in time that artist is going to intersect with your intersect with your interests and aesthetic like preferences in a way that's going to give you a good experience um so yeah like i'm also with you that you talk to people about it because Mm -hmm. other people are going to have a sense of what you're interested in much better than like the arbitrary scores are or indeed any necessary rules about the relationship that order has to it um there are some i am thinking this through as i as i say this like there are some artists where i think it's like important to like see the progression as you go like uh me and marcy sat down and marcy said i've never listened to print properly before mm-hmm. um and i was like <gasps> and decided yeah. you, you tweeted about this and i was at work and i actually gasped such that one of my coworkers like asked me like are you okay and i was like nothing it's dumb <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah so the um so the, the, so the bottom line with that was like I know Prince's discography pretty well between like first album and Batman album that's a stretch of albums that I know pretty damn well right. and I can like walk through them pretty sequentially and that's what we did because I felt like if you're going to like get an overview and a sweep of an artist it's really interesting to see it in the context of like starting off as basically like a disco or funk sound moving towards electronic stuff and gaining pop and gaining weird production stuff and then eventually like the, the like lushness of the the early 90s stuff um mm-hmm. uh and that like that's a progression that is easy to enough to track but like we hopped and skipped through singles and we hopped and skipped through moments that i thought marcy would be interested in and would engage with in a significant way in which case that like i'm pretty sure i know what my favorite albums are and i will go to for whatever reason and there is nothing wrong about like disvaluing either like the full continuity just we talked about the bruce springsteen episode there's probably nothing of bruce to know in the 90s that's interesting there might not be anything interesting from the like 95 to 2005 period from prince that's interesting i don't know that top of my head but like i assume that's the case i might be wrong there's probably some good there's probably some great songs and probably not a great project exactly yeah in which case like these so, yeah, these th- sorts of things get canonized to a little bit to where yeah. if if um uh rave unto the joy fantastic the 1999 uh prince album was like <laughs> a surprise like oh my gosh like prince is back and he's doing stuff like as good as what he was doing in 1982 you would know about that someone would have said that you know yeah <laughs> 
So, but yeah, so all, all this is to say that like, there is a time and place for learning about artists genealogically, because that's an interesting thing for some people to have in your mind. But the like fundamentally music is neither narrative nor is it um, like technologically like, I say this as if music isn't like produced and very much determined by what like technical means of production are available for it. Um, mm. Music is like, can often be less directly constrained and superficially tied to, te- to the technologies that are used to create it. In which yes. case that like, you can just find experiences you're after and that can come at any different point in an artist catalog. And this is signaled by every, any single sort of means that you have available, whether it's your friend's recommendation or critical stuff or like, you know what, this is the sort of moment where like the Spotify playlist puts it in a particular vibe category and that's okay. You can find that. This is exactly where I was about to go, which is that like um, the thing about a uh, video game series, if I was going to start playing Silent Hill, it's really interesting to see how Silent Hill looks a certain way on the PlayStation 1, looks a different way on the PlayStation 2, looks a different way on the PS4. Like, that's interesting, and you can, like, understand something about, like, video game history through that that I think is important. I think this is also very true for films. I think if you, like, um, a, a director who I have not seen all of his films but i've seen like a good number of his films stanley kubrick if you go and see like those first couple 1950s movies and like the sorts of technology he had to produce them the 60s movies and the shining like you can see how like film technology changed and that's interesting and that's very that's very true of music but not always in a way that is abundantly clear to a listener and certainly music technology changes a lot more slowly than i think film and video game technology changes so like yeah on some level like singing into a microphone is always gonna kind of sound like singing into a microphone and the big changes that you hear happen across decades that maybe an artist just doesn't do (laughs) or maybe an artist does put out music for decades but you really only want to hear that first decade. Maybe you just don't care about who's listening to Rolling Stones albums from the 90s. And I'm sure that music technology was different in the 60s and the 90s. But who fucking cares about their 90s albums? You know, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Um, there's also there are a couple ways to this. One is that uh, aesthetic trends in music accelerate and like overtake the technological layer of, of um, yes. mediation much faster. Like everyone's been using an 808 for the last 40 years. It's just that the programs you, the, the patterns you program into your 808 are radically different depending on which American city you're from. Um, yeah. Uh, or indeed European city you're aping an American city's vibe from. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the, 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 like, the forms, are, the formalisms and styles are much more important in that sense than the basic technologies because the basic technologies are like held in common um and also generally aren't that expensive by this point um the second part is there's also a a sense of fetishism there's a like daft punk made an album in the mid 2010s that was meant to sound as like perfect an imitation of like a steely dan recording session from 1977 or something Mm -hmm. um the the process of like 
new technological development isn't tied into like a sense of necessity um the the like capacity to have ever more high definition recording is not done in service of like ensuring that um uh, i mean this is true in some very basic technical senses like loudness has increased over time like extension of the top and bottom end of the the frequency spectrum has expanded over time but fundamentally like you can make albums that sound exactly like stuff that came out of analog desks in Abbey Road Studios in the 60s and 70s. And that can sound entirely appropriate for the aesthetics of your album, including mm. with a lot of those technical limitations baked in, because we don't have the sense of necessity that like people can just make a 480p game and that's okay. I mean, we do. It's just that this isn't the standard of games in which like the there's a, a similar sense of like... Um, yeah, you aren't. We aren't talking about the same realms when we're talking about um, AAA games that have the like nece uh, necessary tie into their technology base, and AAA in Avatarcom's albums that literally can just ape completely like timeless or like historic like production techniques and vibes and aesthetics and mm -hmm. like packages. Well, and yeah, like another thing you kind of touched on there is that like. Um as much as technology like just just trends change um over time and so like like if you were going to listen to every every michael jackson album um in order you would not hear necessarily like any sort of narrative you would not hear um any sort of like you would hear a change in technology but most of what you would hear is that like in the 1960s this kind of like this like soul pop stuff was very popular and that you would hear in the 1970s that funk and disco were very popular and then in the 1980s you would hear a synthesized version of funk and disco was very popular and like that's what you would hear more than um you know any of that and so given all that like knowing all that I would just ask you, well, do you want, like, do you want the analog funk or do you want the synthy funk? Because, like, the the the, the Jackson 5 output in the 70s is really interesting and weird as a sort of, like, bridge between those two things. And, you know, Thriller and Bad are the two best pop albums ever because they're just, like, these finely crafted machines that just, like, <laughs> deliver, like, impeccable vibes to you, you know? <laughs> In, um, in which case, yeah, like the <laughs> it, it, we we always say the same thing about archiving and experiences in games that like you don't need to play a game at 1080p for it to be a more like enriching experience. That's just a, like a complete fucking fallacy, and I pull scorn I, <laughs> on all of the 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 remakes. The, the 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 idea that like we've we've somehow like fixed the problem of experiencing old games by continually asking uh, companies to remake them. Have but. I told you the way that I played Nier Automata? How did you play Nier Automata? Uh, I had a really bad laptop at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to play it because it looked like Kingdom Hearts to me. I was right. It's Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> Kingdom um, Hearts, but Twinks. And... Yeah, basically. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Um, no, Kingdom Hearts is already Twinks. What did I mean? Tw Kingdom Hearts, <laughs> but girl, that was the thing. <laughs> so I remember I I know what I'm here for in the fan art. We can move on. <laughs> <laughs> so um I had a really bad laptop 
and I tried playing it at 1080, and it ran really badly. But I'd spend $60 on this game, and by God, I was going to play it. So I played Nier Automata at 480p, which does mean that there are certain shots that really use the full screen, like the full 16 by 9 aspect ratio, that I mm-hmm. couldn't see because the 480 was cropping out parts of, like, cinematic. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. And it looked like trash, but you know what? That was my favorite game for a, for a little while. I played that game and it really moved me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, like, I, up until I was, what, good, 16, 15, 16, I played games on a CRT that was deeper than it was wide. <laughs> like, up until my parents finally decided that the TV that they probably got when they'd moved to the United Kingdom might not be the best experience for, like, family watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and finally changed it. Um, yeah, no, like, I played the PS2 and most of the PS3 era on a on a piece of junk that like was fuzzed out and had bizarre color balance and like you literally couldn't see straight lines on it and that was just fine because i didn't care too much about the problems it was causing it just gave me what i needed and like honestly like probably hid some of the idiosyncrasies and badness of those games like (laughs) i feel like a lot of the problem that we have now is that the experiential package is kind of lost when we emulate that like mm-hmm. i remember um booting up kingdom hearts Bath by sleep one of my favorite ever psp games on mm-hmm. the excellent psp mo- uh, um, emulator for pc ppss pp i think it's called yeah. and the thing the thing it does is it it loads all its textures at the highest possible resolution and plays it at the largest possible screen size and that's really cool that's a very very different experience from playing it on a handheld screen which is going to have like reflections it's much smaller um you're like playing it in a different everything down to you're playing it in a different body position your hands are holding a different set of buttons and controlling controlling a character mm-hmm. in a very different way like all those like effective blah, you've got me there um i said the word um all those sorts of like <laughs> practical experiential <laughs> aspects that like are going to change your experience of the thing so drastically i know we're off on a complete tangent now i think what it goes to 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 like to say is that we um we'd like vastly underestimate the um the like total elements of the way we experience music we often reduce it to like what is the content of the sound waveform and not the like what are the processes you go through to go to try and experience it Mm-hmm. And I think partly this is to do with, like, what platforms are you using, what, like, discovery mechanisms are you using, what, like, like physical environment have you got set up to listen to stuff. But also, I think it goes to what, like, mental processes are you going to approach the music with. Um, there, there is, uh, like, Eve Sedgwick, Eve Koslovsky, Eve Koslovsky Sedgwick is one of the sort of progenitors of queer theory um and she has a quite like a distinction that i don't think i stick to all the time that i don't trust her um uh that I don't trust her analysis of this all the time but she has a distinction between paranoid reading and reparative reading where like a lot of the time in her at least like to grossly summarize that like queer people will approach like readings of the world analysis or history or whatever it is and be like ah, uh, this is going to have written us out of history. This is going to, like, perpetuate oppression in all sorts of ways. 
and there are modes of like going to texts that include problematic material or include material that will like diminish or emphasize or shape or merely just present and represent experience in a certain way that you can take important valuable stuff out of the list as a reparative mode of approaching complex texts and i sort of feel like we forget that we have a like an orientation towards text as we read them and that goes for games and music as well as for like literary content um that like we come with a stance and what that stance is definitely frames how we experience stuff um the feeling for me like i can talk about this very explicitly the feeling for me when i'm hunting for dj tracks is very different from when i'm listening for hot singles purposes it's very different from when i'm like trying to expand my knowledge base it's very different also to when i'm trying to like um match up my understanding with other people around me like a communal listening experience is very different from a critical listening experience is very different from an educative music experience is very different from like a um an instrumental music experience like a for my purposes and needs music experience um and i feel myself like more and more often very deliberately changing like setting like what am i sitting down to do when i listen to this music and that's like a, a weird thing to do i think that kind mm -hmm. of intentionality is not a thing that i th expect most people come at it with but it's been really useful for me um i think it's changed in a very good way the way i um quite intentionally like register the sorts of feelings that i have when i'm listening to stuff and like sometimes also there is the like you, you, you just put on an album because you like an album and that's okay too you don't need to think about it too hard but finding ways <laughs> to like intelligently and like intentionally change your your experience and your environment around how you experience stuff is like a good thing to do i think yeah do we i do i do need the bathroom um okay so i'm gonna unmute and be back in one moment <laughs> okay hello hello i did have one final thought on this yes which Go. is the person who asked this question is Nora, and Nora has how many listen to the entirety or read the entirety or play the entirety of this franchise series book collection podcasts? Uh, three, four, three. <laughs> <laughs> this might also be indicative of just a thing that Nora is <laughs> like, like when she approaches media. And that I know personally I am not like because I would get bored and disinterested and flake <laughs> out whenever I felt the first urge to do so. So I think that might also be indicative of like, maybe that's a Nora thing and not a not an, uh, <laughs> me thing. Joe asks, hi, Ottoman ranks. I recently discovered that a friend's father has been saving money for 15 years so he can pay for a singer who was famous in the 80s and only 80s to do a to do a private show for him what forgotten uh artists from the 20th century would you save money for decades just to see them play in your home this is a great question <laughs> that's fucking incredible oh my word <laughs> also what an amazing story first of all yeah i mean come on <laughs> um ah uh, this is so my first thought, because I've been on a little bit of like a Bob Dylan thing again, um, as I am mm. wont to do, um, 
And like, obviously Bob Dylan, very well known. I'm not going to get Bob Dylan to play in my home. I'm not even going to get the band. But I feel like there were a lot of like people ancillary to Bob Dylan in the 1970s. And you can see a lot of these people in The Last Waltz. Um, and I feel like there's probably got to be someone who was in Bob Dylan's orbit in the 70s that I would be like, yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> Oh, this um, is such a good I'm gonna question. think about this. Yeah, I'm. Uh, uh, I'm thinking about this. This is a fucking incredible question because, like, the the like crucial part here is it shouldn't be an artist who you want to see a like a big live show from. Yeah, there, there like, should be it, like there should be a reason that you're seeing them at home rather than in like a big stage show it should right. be appropriate to hear at home um and i almost feel like it should be like a band or a group or a person who you want to have that like intimacy with mm-hmm. and that like who whose thing works in that space let me see i feel so- like you you go you go yeah so so there are a couple acts who come to mind for me uh yeah so liz harris has worked under many names most notably grouper grouper is Mm. a project where she basically makes slow beautiful ambient pop songs calling them pop songs is a disservice because they are far more like careful and like quiet and stunningly strange than that but they are like very very simple songs played in the most like incredible atmospheric way um a lot of the recording process is about like feeling this incredibly intimate incredibly quiet but like a like familiar environment that she's recording in that she like very carefully reconstructs in the recording it's very lo-fi but also very like in a space her last album um, or I don't know if she's released stuff under other names in the last little while but um, her last oh no Grid of Points is a more recent album 2014 she put out an album called Ruins that she recorded basically on a hillside in Portugal and you can basically just hear the sounds of the nature around her as she plays it you can also hear elements of the air conditioning unit um, like it's this incredibly careful quiet thing and I've seen her life before and she was stunning live I also feel like she's the sort of artist who would benefit from being in a tiny room, benefit from being amplified minimally, and would benefit from just, like, you sitting on a sofa about 10 metres away from her. Um, That's the first thought, because I think that's the sort of music that would just, like, come alive in a front room. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I have another, but you go first. I would... So... It's weird. This band was forgotten, and then the culture has kind of rediscovered them in the last couple of years. Oh, um, shit. The, 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 the thing was forgotten. I don't know any, if, if any of the people I've got in mind have been forgotten. This is yeah, hard. yeah. Even harder the, if it's forgotten artists. Well, so I, I... I wanted to bring up the forgotten qualifier just because, like... So, I was really into Bikini Kill as a teen. Uh. Um... And I wouldn't want to see Bikini Kill in my home, but there's a bar right next to my home. 
yeah. that like I could see them playing at. And, and I bring this up mostly because Bikini Kill was forgotten, and there was a time when, like, hypothetically, I think you probably could have paid them to show up at just a random bar in St. Louis and, like, play a show. Um, and they got kind of famous again, and so they did a quote-unquote reunion tour, which was three shows in New York and three shows in Vegas, and it was such a... Or not Vegas, three shows in New York and three shows in L.A., and it was such a bummer because it was like, oh, they've gotten, like, they've had a comeback enough that they're going to play in the two biggest markets, but not enough where, like, a normal person like me is going to go get to be able to see Bikini Kill, you know? Um, so Bikini Kill might be my answer here. Yeah. That's really good. I mean, <laughs> we all remember, like... Uh, everyone in on the internet rediscovered Bikini Kill when Gone Home came out. That was like a I, that I, I literally have been wondering remember. as I've been talking. Is like, is it literally just because of Gone Home? Is Bikini no, Kill? No, the um the rediscovery of Riot Girl just like preceded um Gone Home as a game because that was also the era of like Slate Kinney coming back. Um, and it's sort of like because yeah, what I thought was uh, that like a simultaneous. I thing. had I um. See- I want to see what I can remember being in Bikini Kill when I first played Gone Home. So it yeah, makes exactly. sense that like the rediscovery of Riot Girl as a genre kind of precedes Gone Home. Yeah, it was also like I remember it very much being a thing. I want to see when that the Slate Akinney rediscovery album. Yeah, it's it's before. Uh, Gone Home was a 2013 game. No Cities to Love is a 2015 game. Um, it's two years between the two but like Mm -hmm. I also very distinctly remember this sort of like wave of interest like it was this sort of like late am I right in like pigeonholing this is like mid late Obama era like rediscovery of like edgy white feminism oh definitely definitely and like Riot Girl very much fit into that in many different ways admittedly like a a really cool scene in its own right but like you know has has a has an npr demographic ready made to hoover up this isn't quite um this isn't quite riot girl but it's riot girl adjacent the breeders had a comeback in like the Mm -hmm. mid to late obama era you know (laughs) um like, they put out albums in 2008 and 2009, and they were, like, touring through that time. I remember when the Breeders were back. Um, they might still be touring, for all I know. Uh, I mean, nobody's touring now, but, you know. Yeah. Um. <sighs> this is, yeah, this is really hard. I, again, like, the other answer I have is Yola Tango. Again, more... Oh, Yeah. Again, I don't think they're entirely forgotten. I think they're mostly forgotten. Um, Because I feel like hanging out with them and, like, having dinner with them and, like, maybe doing a Friday night with with them and, like, (laughs) the, uh, like, process of, like, just getting vibing with the group would just be really nice. You probably, like, have, have, like, drinks drinks on the porch afterwards. Maybe you go out to a bar, maybe you play around a pool. And they'd be like very measured, and you'd probably talk quite a lot about like books and the, the like shittiness of touring, and it will be great. And that that's I, something that I just want. 
<laughs> I saw I saw um, Yola Tengo in um, when I was very young, like probably mm. ten or twelve years old, because they were a band that my dad was into. Yeah, and um, I like I didn't I didn't get much out of it because I was ten or twelve years old, and I was like, what? What? Okay, I'll go with you to this, Dad. I think my dad just wanted to go and had me for the weekend, and so he brought me to um, Yola Tengo, and. I'm kind of bummed that I don't, like, remember that, because, like, now I'm like, holy shit, I saw Yola Tengo, and I didn't know what I was seeing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Even though they're still around, they still do stuff. Like, you Again, know, it's not like, I've seen them they're the not last, rare, like, it's just no, that, like... Yeah, yeah, no, I saw them in the last, again, one of the more recent nights out I had before lockdown, really, like, bit in earnest was a London show for Yola Tango and they were great and they can literally be as loud as they were at their like their, their moment in their heyday and it was very very cool to see like 50 year olds can make squealing chaotic guitar noises too um yeah I, I I don't I remember also around this time this might have been the same show it might not have been genuinely couldn't remember my dad took me to say uh, t- took me to see Alejandro Escovedo um, which is another great, like, yeah, I'd love to see Alejandro Escovedo play the bar next door to me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Makes a lot uh-huh. of sense. Yeah. But yeah, like, the, the ones for me are, like, art- again, it's very hard for me to say forgotten. I feel like I should be able to pull out some, like, weird niche pick from my music library um, out and just be like, haha, I have top trumped you with a random person who's, like, unknown to history. And, like, I could try to do that, but what honestly feels a lot more realistic is, like, there are so many artists who I feel, like, would benefit from that, like, intimacy and that, like, real closeness and that also I want to have chats with. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, that that's that's the, the direction I'm headed. Um, we got a last-minute question from Nia. Mm-hmm. Um, hey friends, is there a basketball anime you would recommend to help me get into basketball? There are two answers, right? Like, yeah, um, again, there are only two basketball anime that matter. I haven't seen any of them, so no. I can't say with any confidence. But there are two. Yeah, there's there's Slam Dunk, which looks like a ridiculous like like the the slam the the art style on Slam Dunk has always kind of put me off. It's like a it. it it's got like the '90s beefcakiness of like a Dragon Ball or a Berserk, um, but like less cute than I think either of those are. Mm-hmm. Um, but Slam Dunk is like beloved. Um, and then yeah. the other one it's, is also to be clear, this is very much just like uh, anime response to the '90s bulls. Like that's very much the energy it has. Oh yeah, one hundred million percent. Um, the other more recent thing that's probably has always interested me more um just a very like normal contemporary anime you could like watch this alongside my hero academia and it would like make perfect sense um is kuroko's kuroko's basketball i can never remember how to say that name kuroko's basketball yeah um Um, it seems like a very good show i just haven't seen it yeah um to be honest having like tried because like dipping back into shonen stuff in the mid 2010s the best basketball anime is not a basketball anime, it's Haikyuu. Um, it's the wrong sport, <laughs> but it's a better show and has all the, like, bonding 
like fraternal things that you want from this show all the challenges all the slightly gay shit it's great um it's also just wrapping up or just wrapped up i think um it's a marginally better show um from like i bounced slightly off the first bits of kuroko and very much fell in love with haiku um the, but um... but like again you're not asking for a volleyball show you're asking for a basketball show i don't like that's not helpful to you i'm very sorry <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I learned uh, at the start of this year, I watched the um, that first uh, that seventy, not that first, the seventies uh, aim for the ace movie, and that's that's not what you want from like a basketball show, I don't think, because it's not a team sport. Um, but mm-hmm. the thing I realized uh, is that if you want to watch sports anime, you have to not care about the sport and you have yep. to care about the story. Um, which is a bummer for me because I want to watch a cool basketball anime, but neither of the basketball anime, neither of the big two basketball anime that exist catch my eye as much as Haikyuu does, you know, or, or, you know, um, there's, there's one other sports anime I was thinking about watching that is like not a sport I give even half of a shit about, but it looks like a good show. Whereas Kuroko's just never has caught my eye really. Um, No, that's fair. Um, what was the thing that I had in mind? Oh, just like in general sports anime, like the, the ones that turn themselves into not sports anime or at least turn themselves into like things that don't show off the like power and incredible nature of the characters through like outlandish, ridiculous anime bullshit with the sport tend to be my favorite. So like Pink on the Animation and Yuri on Ice both qualify as sports anime, but they're not like in this mold of like ridiculous slow motion jump shots and bullshit you um, know what I, I i did want to ask do you th- i've been on a baseball kick in the last month or so are there surely japan has like obviously got this incredible history with baseball are there good yeah. baseball anime there is there is one that has been running for a very long time that i believe people really like i am looking into what the name of it is right now um, it'll just take me a second, but there's one that's been running a very long time. Um, that looks good. Uh, I'm scrolling through this list and it's in chronological order. And I just love how seventies anime looks. I just really <laughs> love how seventies anime looks. Um, uh, is it this? Uh, no, sorry. This is boring to listen to. I'm sure. I'm going to try bas- baseball manga. I'm, maybe that'll get me some easier results here. Because uh, I know Ace of the Diamond. Um, uh, okay. I I believe this. Uh, I believe it has a show. It definitely has a manga, obviously. And it, I believe is pretty beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, you should also, you should watch Only Yesterday. There is a baseball sequence in it that really made me understand sort of like there's a baseball sequence in Only Yesterday that is maybe the best I've ever seen. Like, this is why people watch, like watching sports live, you yeah, know? Okay. Like, I, yeah, and obviously, like, I watch sports live. I know why people watch sports live. But it's a really hard thing to capture, and I think Only Yesterday does it really well in this one baseball scene. Sick. Um, nice, nice. Look at that mind. Cheers. Um, and yeah, Ace of Diamond... Uh, has a 130 odd episodes series that ran in the mid <laughs> in the mid 2010s it also has 47 volumes that ran over a decade of the, the manga 
Oh, so that was the first part. Because if you scroll down on this Wikipedia page that we're both looking at, I assume, uh, uh-huh. there's a Ace of Diamond Act 2 that has been running from 2015 to present Yo. and is 26 volumes in. So, Christ. Okay, yeah, this is this is, this is is gone places. Nice. <laughs> um, I'll also put the marker in here. Um, Shohei Otani is currently tied for most home runs in the MLB at the, this point in time he Ooh. tied it with a with a with a dinger only overnight um and is also the best starting pitcher on the LA Angels he is I'm not gonna say it would be bullshit to say he's real life anime but he's also incredible to watch and has one of the most <laughs> like effortless graceful strokes that I've ever seen any sportsman have his swing reminds me of a Roger Federer forehand it's very very graceful He's, like, perfectly proportioned in every possible way. Um, well, the race is so tight, too, because it's it. you've got Vladi and Shohei in first with 23, and Tatis has got 22. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, again, this is, uh, this is the thing that's exciting about getting to the MLB, is, like, wait, hang on, the personalities aren't just grumpy dudes with mustaches and mullets. It's, like, I had an impression of what the uh, baseball player was like, and it was kind of randy johnson it was kind of yeah weird hair spitting like grumpy old white dudes and like that's I, cool in some ways but it's not something i can tolerate for large stretches <laughs> i so, think and suddenly the stars are just better than that now i get the impression that in the aftermath of the steroid stuff they it seems like they legislated a lot of fun out of the game for a while Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like people are having fun again, you know? That's good. That's good. Um, I, I have indeed seen the great bat flip. The, uh, I can't remember who the dude was. In, I don't t- remember, t- but he played for the, the Blue Jays. Blue, Blue Jays player series walk-off homer. Yeah, I remember that. And, like, that seems like I've watched small documentaries about Vlade and um, Tatis and bat flips and shit like that. It feels like you're right, but... I'm also on X, but we will we'll have this yeah. conversation with Molly at some point. That'll be fun. Yes, we will. Um, um, let's not get ahead of ourselves with the sports chat, though. Um, yeah. So, so, you've been playing Skyrim, and you wanted to ask me, why do people like Skyrim, if I'm not mistaken? Basically. So, let me, let me set this up. Um, yeah. I'm bad at playing video games. Um, I mean this in the sense of attention is a thing is a, is a rare commodity in my life um, and when I have it it goes places and it's good and when I don't it's the, it's a bad time for everyone involved um, and mm-hmm. that like sometimes I will hyperfixate and that's good for moments and otherwise like I will find it very hard to invest time consistently into a thing as big and as sprawling as a big RPG uh, I then watched a bit of you and Nora playing, what was it, Morrowind and Oblivion. Oblivion. Yeah, both of you were playing different Elder Scrolls games. And they were very pretty, they were quite well designed, it seemed, like the, 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 the visual style was really distinctive, and you were having fun with it, and just there were just a, a few key moments that made it stop feeling like a thing that would spiral very quickly out of my grasp and out of my control. And it's mm-hmm. something that I could like get my hands on and not feel overwhelmed in. I'm also not at all versed in high fantasy. This is not a thing that I'm like particularly like like familiar with. I was never a D and D kid. I've never played an Elder Scrolls game before, as well as never having played a Bethesda RPG before. 
Um, I have uh-huh. tried so many times. I've played the first five hours of Fallout 3 several times. I've played the first couple hours of Skyrim a couple times. Never clocked why they were interesting whatsoever. Um, and just like decided, you know what, let's give it a shot. Um, so I'm in this weird place now where I don't know whether Game Pass or Xbox app will tell me how many hours I've put into Skyrim in the last little while. Is there a way of finding that out? Uh, I, I don't feel like there ought to be. There ought to be. I'm literally Googling this because I'm offended if there isn't. Xbox app play time. Uh, show the play time. Achievements. Let's have a look at achievements. I'm just watching a Shohei Otani home run compilation instead of Excellent. covering up for... <laughs> uh, um, I have played... Whew, that's more time than I expected, probably because I've kept it on for extended periods while I'm not actually playing it. I think I left it... I've not running overnight, but apparently mm-hmm. I've put in about 35 hours. It's quite okay. a lot. It's quite a lot of Skyrim. 35, 40 yeah. hours. I can't do maths. Yeah. It's 40 hours. Um, it's quite a lot of Skyrim. Um, oh. So, it is a game that I think... So, I don't want to, like spaff out all my takes before you explain to me what you find compelling about it because if I remember correctly you said you wouldn't play Oblivion you play Skyrim because it gives you the similar experience but you just like the Skyrim version of it more because it's like newer and shinier and more up to date so I want to hear firstly like what about these kind of Bethesda RPGs you find compelling what about Skyrim you find compelling and whether you have like the similar problems and like deal with them in different ways to me so the um to answer the first thing of just like why do i like skyrim better than oblivion um like people who have watched my morrowind streams and i want to do some more of them but like i mentioned earlier i've been doing a lot and that's just you know <laughs> just uh, as i try to dial back a touch like that's a very easy thing to cut for me yeah um so morrowind is a very weird edgy game like edgy in the sense that like there's all sorts of like corners and like weird stuff that you bump into with that game and it doesn't make a lot of sense and um oblivion tries to like sand off a lot of those edges um to make it a more mainstream game and it was pretty successful oblivion was a very very big hit um i think the way that they chose to do that doesn't work for me a lot of the time. Um, and I think uh, for me, Skyrim is this sort of like perfectly honed. Now there are no edges and it's like, it's just a different thing. I like Skyrim for very different reasons than I like Morrowind, but it's just like, ah, uh, we have taken all the craggly bits and all the weirdness and kind of, Skyrim, for me, has this sort of perfected loop of you go do a dungeon or a quest or something and you come back and I enjoy all the crafting and all the crafting is easy to access, unlike Oblivion. Um, And so, you know, I make new weapons and armor and I sell a bunch of stuff and then I go find some other random schmuck and get a quest room and go back out. Um, And it's weird... um, 2020 was the year that i finally learned to like breath of the wild i'd been trying for three years and 2020 was the year that it really finally clicked for me and 
Breath of the Wild, I feel, is a game that I... Breath of the Wild is a game that I think, like, says to the player, like, I want you to express yourself. I want you to, um, like, you know, play this your own way and go in your own directions and all these sorts of things. And I think that Bethesda would like you to believe that that's what their RPGs are. I think Bethesda would, uh, you know... Um, like you to believe that these are very expressive games about doing whatever you want. I don't know that that's been true since Morrowind. I think, like, in Skyrim, the thing I enjoy is finding a random person, giving me a direction to go in and going in that direction. Um, and, like... The, the strength of the game is that there are so many multiple and varied people to give you directions to go into. Not that there are, you know, people who give you lots of directions to go into, just people who give you one interesting direction to go in. Um, and so that's kind of the big appeal to me, is it's a game, it's a game where I can lose myself um and I'll like you know five hours disappeared and i was just playing skyrim the whole time but like i pick it up again the next day and i know what i was doing which is not true of a game like breath of the wild where i pick it up the next day and i'm like what the fuck was i doing i guess i'll just go do something else instead like um <laughs> i th i think that's what really works for me about um uh skyrim the, the, this is one of the big things here is that Skyrim has a thing that Morrowind does not, which is a compass, and on the compass is a little arrow that says, if you want to go do whatever quest you've selected, you can go in this direction. Um, Morrowind doesn't have that, and so Morrowind ends up being a lot more freeform as you get lost, and then you bump into a random person in the wilderness, and you're like, why is there a person out here? Let me go talk to them. Um... Skyrim doesn't do that, and that's not what it's trying to do, and I think it's a strong game because of it. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so first thing, I'm guessing you enjoy the process of the loop itself. Like, you, you, yes. get, a, you get a direction to head out, and you go in that direction. That tends to mean you go into a cave or a dungeon or a temple or whatever it is, and you kill a bunch of baddies, and you kill the head baddie, and you steal his shit and you open a crate and you find the entrance back out and you fast travel back to the guy who gave you a quest, right? Like, mm -hmm. you yeah. enjoy that, that loop is satisfying to you. Yes, very much so. This is also, this is why some people get really into Monster Hunter. I mm -hmm. probably would get really into Monster Hunter. Uh, it's just like, the two times I've tried to play it, I just wasn't in a huge gaming mood. Um, mm -hmm. But, like, this is the thing that people love about Monster Hunter, is that you... Monster Hunter even more, like, strips the loop down to, like, its essential components and then builds on that. I think yeah, maybe Skyrim's biggest weakness is that, like, it has the loop, but does not... Um, it, there is still just enough freeform stuff that, like, it's not this sort of, like... It doesn't have the sort of, like, perfection, almost, that, like, Monster Hunter games do, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, this is the thing that I, I felt almost immediately, was I do not like the combat system whatsoever. Um, oh, the combat's wretched. 
Come on, it's, it's so bad. Rubbish. Um, it is weightless and stodgy and unresponsive. And what I really want to do is fling fireballs at people, but even the fireballs kind of feel a bit weightless. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm still playing mm-hmm. a mage and burning people to a crisp. But then eventually I was just like, fuck this. And I turned the difficulty down to, I don't know if it was novice or whatever, it's one above novice or apprentice or whatever it is. And just like what I care about is like going through the progressions. I don't care about the actual content of the, the loop itself. Um, and it's making it a lot more like narrative focused because the loops like end up being quick. I now have the confidence to blast through most of these dungeons, knowing that like until I get to to the boss fight, I'm not really going to get challenged, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the combat's wretched. Um, so the the combat's weird because in the first three Elder Scrolls games in Morrowind, if I swing a sword, um, like there is a dice roll behind the scenes um, based on my sword skill, and I hit based on how that dice roll comes out. Uh-huh. Um, it, part of what Oblivion does that Skyrim carries forward um, is, like, we will make all those sorts of things will connect, and your sword skill will determine, like, damage and a couple other things, not will the sword hit... Which it's, makes it action RPGs RPGifies it rather than like yeah like tabletop RPGifies it yes but the thing that nobody in you know you know they took three years to make Oblivion they took five years to make Skyrim nobody in that almost a decade span said hey the thing that was interesting we took away the thing that was interesting about combat before and didn't put in anything interesting to replace it <laughs> you know it's fine if you don't yeah. want to do a dice roll it's really annoying that they didn't come up with anything interesting to make combat varied or difficult or you know yeah you have one move it's swing sword <laughs> It's really dumb that they didn't come up with anything else for a character to do other than click to swing sword after they took away what made click to swing sword interesting. Yeah, I mean, so this is the second part is like, okay, so my first problem is that 80% of the missions you go on are a loop that is compelling, that makes you want to keep playing the game on the off chance it's one of those 20% of the interesting missions. Um, Yes. And it keeps me hooked. But fundamentally, the process is kind of dog shit. Um, the second part is, what verbs do you have with your hands? Like, what mechanics can you actually grasp and engage with? You have swing sword, either put up shield or do spell. And then, like, that's it. Yep. <laughs> that's it. And so, putting so- up shield is never an interesting option. No. So you can just take that off the table. You don't need to worry about putting up shields because that's boring and no yeah. one wants to do it. So I currently go around with fireball in left hand, a sword that sets people on fire in the other hand, and it's great, and I smash through people, and it's wonderful. But, like, <laughs> come on. So, so okay, this, is, this leads into the second point, is... So where is the game? The game isn't really in... <laughs> In, in the verbs you have with your hands, the game's in the conversation, the inventory system. Like, that's where the game is, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, in which case, like, the 3D world is, like, a nice addition to what's fundamentally, like, a text or tabletop system, right? 
It's an yes. it's like it's a spreadsheet and a conversation system. That's what the game is. Um, yes. And it means all the best moments in this game are not environmental storytelling, they're system storytelling mm -hmm. using like couriers or, I mean, I, I hardly want to say the conversation system because the conversation boils down to if you've got a big sword, you can click intimidate in every conversation check and win. And that's not particularly fun either. <laughs> um, but fundamentally, like the most compelling moments here is what, are when like, objects in the world that you didn't expect to be able to pick up and interact with are interactable and the the interesting stuff's in books that you pick up and they trigger missions just by you reading the content of the book or i think the most interesting moment i've had so far was hear a rumor that there's a I, you probably played this quest because it's quite early on and i think windhelm mm -hmm. um hear a rumor there's a murderer um, you track down a lead on the murderer. It means you have to pick the lock to a house that's been like closed for a while. Inside, you find an eight-year-old child who's summoned an assassin's order and yes. thinks you're an assassin. Um, mm -hmm. You go do the assassination and pretend to be from the order of assassins that um, the the, mm -hmm. the boy summoned. And a day later, a courier turns up with a piece of paper with a black handprint on it saying, "We know." And that's mm -hmm. a quest line that hasn't finished for me. Like at some point I assume I will meet the Dark Brotherhood and that'll be like a cool in-character moment. But like fundamentally nothing in the actual like world of the game beyond maybe some like set piece choreography in terms of the like visuals has been anywhere near as compelling as just like a moment where a courier comes and hands you a note that like breaks yes. the illusion of the separation of like narrative from inventory system. Yes. And like that's the um. only bit of the game that is like, oh fuck, there's something really meaty here. Everything else is like kind of miserable. <laughs> um, this is the this is a conversation that Nora and I have been having off mic a lot. Yeah, is that like because I've been posting on uh, Twitter just about once a day. Hey, it's kind of fucked up that it's been ten years and they haven't made another Elder Scrolls game. And yes, there's an MMO. <laughs> no, I don't care. Um, yeah, it's a 2011 game. Um, it is a 2011 game. Um, and so. The thing that we have been talking about a lot is that the first three games come out of a tabletop space. You can see how tabletop influences those designs. Um, and all they really did in Oblivion and Skyrim is strip all that out, but they didn't put anything like video gamey in, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And so in um Morrowind where every action you do has a dice roll associated with it like there's a lot of interest and intrigue and in Morrowind you are is primarily a game about how you wander around a 3D space so you can get things to interact with in your inventory but that's fine because it is you know kind of a tabletopy sort of thing but but Skyrim and Oblivion strip all that out and then forgot to put anything in to replace it yeah. <laughs> in some ways. And so we've been talking about, like, how do you make an Elder Scrolls Six? Because in some ways, somebody has to realize they couldn't keep doing that. And so somebody had to realize we've taken everything out of the game and we have a game that people like, but I don't think people are going to like it a second time. Um, I think you, you might also underestimate how much people want to shoot fireballs from their fists 
in a that's, world where that's they can like, kill passersby. It like Grand Theft's Arcanum, um, but you know, right? Like this is the other thing is that like you know, um, when Oblivion came out, it had kind of the excuse that like open world games were still getting their feet under them, and Oblivion was like. Oblivion came out in 2006 where, yeah, it's very stripped down, but there weren't a lot of games like it. And Skyrim still has that as, like, open world games were very popular, and it can kind of ride that at that point. Um, But now every game is an open world game. Every game is kind of like this a little bit. Yeah. And if you're going to make the Elder Scrolls 6, the question becomes, what do you have the distinct... Why would I play this instead of Breath of the Wild? Why would I play this instead of the new Assassin's Creed? Why would I play this instead of Red Dead Redemption 2? And I don't know if anyone at Bethesda has an answer to that question. And the answer should be writing. The answer should absolutely be, we have the most deep lore, we have the most complex political intrigue, we have the most... But they took all of that out, too! (laughs) Oh, so I'll I'll get onto that in a second, because I think that's another massive question I want to ask about, because you know far more about the lore lore and the history of the series. But, um, so, like, the, 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 the thing for me about this is, like, what is so clearly lacking for me is a sense of authorship about the space. Like, the... Every single time I interact with this world, like wherever there is like direction and authorship, it's pretty interesting. And the majority of it feels so ups like ab- absurdly like <laughs> loose. Um that just like it, it, I struggle to figure out how you could construct a world where you have more verbs to interact with. This is a, this is another part of it. So like the verbs you do have that aren't inventory system are kill. They are just kill. And yes. a failure of the writing, I think, is to actually lean into ways in which you could not kill and that be an option, because not not pressing the buttons is also a valid choice. Mm-hmm. But like it just like the amount of automatically aggressive enemies where you expect like maybe the quest giver was giving me one side of the story and I'll go to the dungeon and meet someone who's gonna be like, No, don't listen to the quest giver. Give the give the stone to me. I'll give you this benefit in return. Go back and kill your quest giver, or go mm-hmm. sell a lie to your quest giver. And it like spends so little. It has so little interest for like subverting any of its own like loops at all. Um, it mm-hmm. just wants you to kill. Um, yes. And I think that's a failure of the writing. But like a second part of that is that there is so little like the the amount of identikit dungeons and the amount of like mm-hmm. authorship over the spaces in which you're doing this to set up interesting moments even within those loops is so limited and i don't know how you could produce a game on this scale that does it and like the, the comparison i'm running in my head is like probably my favorite open world rpg i'm not going to say of all time because it's a very big claim to make and i haven't played enough to like actually remember what the answer is but um i haven't played it in a recently enough either to know what the answer is but assassin's creed 2 is great because the city is immaculately designed. Um, Mm -hmm. Assassin's Creed 2, like, knows the cities it's trying to build perfectly well. Um, Obviously, it constructs, like, ridiculous, fantastical versions of it where you can, like, parkour your way through the whole thing. But, like, the Mm -hmm. traversal and the architecture and the way that they interact are, like, super good. And the way it, like, implicitly shows off, like, class dynamics and implicitly shows off, like geographical Mm -hmm, hierarchy mm -hmm. and geographical separation is just like so much more interesting than literally everything it does 
in even the like dungeon environment in Skyrim. And on the well, other side, like, you get like Mass Effect, which is full of identical environments. It's just got enough verbs for it to be playful. Um, yeah. And like, uh, it's, so it's stuck between doing either of the two, like either a sense of authorship or a sense of like expansive toolkit. Um, and it's got neither of them. Um, also, it just wants you to kill and is obsessed with killing. And you kill an awful lot of people for no apparent reason. And what you could <laughs> not kill and that be much more interesting. So in, in Assassin's Creed 2, it knows very specifically how... Because Assassin's Creed 2 is a game about killing people. And Assassin's Creed 2 knows that if you go into a situation, there's like two, maybe three ways that you could kill somebody here, you know? Whereas Skyrim, it, it doesn't know... Does this person have fireball spell? Maybe they're playing such that they don't have fireball spell. Maybe they don't have a bow and arrow. Maybe they don't have a sword. Like the and so you can you go into a dungeon and it has to work with every single way that you could be playing the game, which means that it's boring <laughs> because so, yeah. I mean, yeah, I kind of, I kind of like lean into that and be like your inventory. If you do the minimal amount of inventory management, you can have three weapons on you any one time, right? Mm -hmm. um, I feel like unless you, you you're like a hard as nails gamer and want to, you know, hashtag put your gamer pants on. And I don't know why that does up the hashtag, but you know, um, <laughs> um, but one is to like really like tough as nails it. The the game is not going to be one that stresses your inventory or your like capacity no. to deal with the problems in front of you enough to like stop you ever having a solution to the problem put in front of you in this combat system mm -hmm. at least. Yeah, the um, this is something I hadn't thought about. But if like if the thing combat is not interesting in these games. Um, and so, like, if the thing that is interesting is inventory management, then they should probably try to add any sort of challenge to inventory management, but as is, you can just level up your strength and get more inventory to manage, you yeah, know? Yeah, I mean, what what I did instead was un unwittingly become the, the Archmage of Winterhold College, and just have a cupboard that everything goes in. That cupboard has yes. seven, seven suits of armor and 40 dragon mm -hmm. bones and quite a lot of Dwemer metal and all that fun stuff. It's just like the world's most overstuffed cupboards. It's, if, if the cupboard was not magical in an Archmage's college, it would probably explode immediately. <laughs> but it's an, Arch, it's an Archmage's cupboard, so it means it's infinitely yeah. deep. Um, yeah. Um, was, while I'm thinking about the Archmage's College so the thing that got me in the thing that like rescued me was Nora starting Nora's playing uh, Oblivion right mm -hmm. Nora started Oblivion and was like well I'm playing a mage so that means I gotta go to the Mage's College mm -hmm. and I was like oh god intentionality that's the thing that's missing <laughs> that was yes. the thing that I needed as a hook to get me into this game because otherwise it was so like wildly overwhelming um, yes the signposting in this game is awful. Like, absolutely mm -hmm. god-awful. Um, paths, just like, I d wish they figured out a better environmental way to like signal paths than like, they just sort of, okay, there's like a, there's like an, a design choice here. Like, sometimes it's cool when paths run out. Like, that's an interesting thing to do. 
but fundamentally the amount of times that you just like get annoyed and run into a cliff that you can't scale or you can scale because the walking is fucking busted but you know um the the like the sense of direction in this game is something that like only gets like rescued for me or got rescued for me like five hours in and the thing that i needed to do was be like okay i guess this character's a mage so i'm gonna make a long trek to start the game and suddenly you're in and that's all right um but fundamentally like the 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 the, the it's again something about the lack of intentionality in the design of the spaces because that extends to like how you traverse the world and i wish there was just like a modicum more of like telling you where that in those those first few hours like sensible decisions can start coming out of because that's what made me bounce every single time to start with and it needed me being like nora says you can just go to the mages college and start becoming a mage and that's Mm -hmm. what i did and it worked um yeah yeah. so sorry you have a thing on that or similar uh no but i do need to use the restroom very badly (laughs) go 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 go. all right catch in a sec Ooh, uh, yeah, having chats about the value form on a Monday morning. Afternoon, afternoon now. What about the trade value form of Ben Simmons, am I right? Fuck! <laughs> okay, I had I had a, the last set of Skyrim thoughts of UK to jump back to that very briefly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually, was like, I was like, hey, do we want to, do we have more Skyrim stuff? Oh, we do um, have more Skyrim stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we will, we will fucking get there. Don't, don't set me off too early. <laughs> So, the thing I said, like, should be the thing that makes Skyrim work, and that occasionally does, in the, like, 10-20% to 20% of the, the, the game that does make it work, is writing. The writing should be the thing. Um, so... I started the game, and you start the game when the leader of an insurgent revolutionary resistance question mark movement called Alfred Stormcloak is about to get executed, and a big dragon like comes in and ensures the fate of you and Alfred Stormcloak is to not get executed, and like, ah, uh, the bad evil empire was going to execute you, so you want to fight the bad evil empire, right? Or maybe you should join their side. So I joined the Stormcloaks. I, I had no reason not to. It was just like, let's progress the plot a bit. Um... So, like, I get that the game's trying to go for an everyone's horrible thing, right? Like, it's trying to go for this, like, uh, the, 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 like, underdogs and the, the, the resistive insurgency is also, like, a bunch of racist twats. And then, just, like, the problem is with that, the, the, the Imperial is a race in Skyrim, Right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> this feels like a category error, except that, like, maybe there's interesting writing or thought that emerges from making Imperial a race. Uh-huh. <sighs> ah. I, I, putting aside, I'm playing as a cat guy. The, the fucking... Like, I'm meant to be one of the people that the Imperials don't even like and should be racist against. But... Yeah, it's very, very weird. Um, it feels like there is no way to play this game other than as like a strife for racial purity. Um, and it's very fucking weird to, to be on like trying to like decide which version of like 
like which version of state racism you want to throw your your, your cap into yeah it's weird right it's weird uh, that's sorry, the choices do, it's like yeah sorry i did want to add also that like the weird racialization they do then also feeds into the fact that the only racial fantasy of purity that they have is a white one there is like no way to play as the like <laughs> the actually racialized other the your, your alternatives are racially superior empire who wants to get rid of the the elves and the cat people or nords with all the like attendant mystic racial bullshit that ties in with that like there is only like the the infighting of the whites here this feels like white racial anxiety played out in video game form with not yes. even the possibility of thinking about the like subjugated the, the like subjugated races at all you can play uh-huh. as them. It doesn't matter. You're playing white yes. fantasies. That's it. Yes. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Morrowind is a game that that is interested in these sorts of things. That like, the, am I right in thinking Morrowind is where the the Falmer, the, the the Dark Elves or something are from? The Dunmer. The Dunmer. Dunmer. There we go. But yeah. Um. So so Morrowind um is a game that is interested in, like, what is it like to live under colonial occupation for centuries, you know? Is this um, of the, the Dunma by the Empire? By the Imperials, yes. Imperials, and at that point in the history of my writing thinking, it's very much the Nords are the Imperials as well. Or is that um, not true? There, there are... The Nords are more in the empire's good graces but they're very you know skyrim is also like a is also like even if it's in the empire's good graces and the 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 empire is in skyrim's good graces like it is still like the the nord people have like their own national identity that is separate from imperial understood i mean this this is just after talos bullshit like the it was a nord who founded the empire um which was like one of the first indicators that like oh god there is no escape on any side from the like Uh racist founding myth of empire on either imperial or or stormcock side of this and so like Morrowind still does the sort of video game writing trope of oh both sides are kind of bad and um like um both both sides have problems and you know you have to make these choices between these two sides of this conflict one being the Imperials occupying Mor- Morrowind and the other side being the sort of native Dunmer people being and I'm going to use a word as shorthand. I don't think that's what this is, but like being racist to or toward any sort of people from outside, even if you play a Dunmer in Morrowind because you are not from Morrowind itself, people are racist toward you. And like mm-hmm. racism is a system of oppression, not um, people being individual mean. action. Yeah. But you understand that if you're listening to this podcast, I don't have to explain to you how, you know, people being occupied are not actually racist, even if they are bigoted toward whatever anyway so that that is sort of like the the interesting conflict that morrowind generates and and like yes it is like the the game is very much on the side it is bad the way that the imperials are occupying this place 
on the other hand, the Dunmer thinks slavery is good. Like, engage in, like, chattel slavery constantly. Yeah. And that is, like, a socially acceptable thing in the, like, native Dunmer culture. And so that generate there's lots of, like, interesting, like, cultural conflicts between parties with different interests in Morrowind. Um, and by the time, like, they just, it, it feels like an accident because you play the games that have come out since then. And it feels like, it just feels like it, that Morrowind is well-written by accident, that they just stumbled into really good ideas and interesting things because Oblivion doesn't have this. Oblivion just has white racial anxiety and Skyrim just has white racial anxiety. And it, they're going to make an Elder Scrolls six. And it will be more white racial anxiety. They have taken everything out of the setting that could be anything other than white racial anxiety. And so when I think when I'm thinking about they should make an Elder Scrolls six, I'm like, well, they should go to Akavir, which is a place we've never seen. Um, which is mystical Asia, and that will be racist in a different direction. Is but this, please, I don't. Yeah. It it'll be racist, like it'll be magic Asia, but it will be. At what? least it won't be like <laughs> yeah. which flavor of white nationalist do you want to be in the main quest? Yeah, is it like <laughs> you know? is it like are you pure blooded Roman imperial or are you Nordic Nazi myth? Like, yeah. Um, th- um, is is that where the Khajiit are from? The cat people are from, or? No, the cat people are from somewhere in Tamriel. Akavir is a different continent. Cool. Um, cool. Um, oh, yeah, that is, I that is just that. Magic Asia, and it, that'll be bad. I, I think if they went to Akavir, it would be racist. It would be so racist. But like, it would force you to encounter. I, it like, would be. It would be something pro- we haven't seen in the setting before. <laughs> You know, it would be new racism. We've done white nationalism twice now. I would like to do anything other than more white nationalism, please. Yeah, I mean, so this is the thing, is in, like, Morrowind stumbled into it by simply, like, putting the Dunmer at the center of the universe. I would be very up for, like, I don't know, orcs or Khajiit being the center of the universe or something. Like, I don't know whether, like, people could, like sustain that whether that's actually reasonable to expect but like you know that's the that's the thing we're after literally anything other than yeah the other thing you could do and i think this i think they won't do this but i think the thing you could do would be to make a game about the red card and um Mm -hmm. you could do something interesting there is I, I think Bethesda knows enough to know that we shouldn't make a game about magic black people because we'll get canceled. <laughs> I think Bethesda doesn't isn't smart enough to make that an interesting game. It is only smart enough to know that they wouldn't make an interesting game about magic black people, and so they probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, I, I just when I when I clocked that Imperial is a race you could play as, I just like my brain broke. That was a that was a moment where yes. I was just like I saw through the the heart of the thing. Um, yes, they don't yes. know what they're doing. With, <laughs> they don't know what they're doing with racial politics quite clearly. Um, it's dark. It's it's yeah. Cool. Um, anyway, so yeah, um, Skyrim's occasionally wonderful. Great when it actually puts mechanics like the mechanics as in the inventory and conversation system to work 
it rarely mm. if ever does that and the story it's telling is I'm going on with it but it's very very weird and messy and bleh. um but yeah. you can shout Fusro Dara at people and that's kind of fun <laughs> you can do that that so, is great so the, the, the most incredible moment oh my god where um, <laughs> the first like you know how you have dungeons on the map um and mm. sometimes you get a side quest that says, go to the nearby dungeon and give me, find, fetch quest my bullshit. And the first one being, uh, you do that and you, you find the, the thing, a wall, which has some words on it at the bottom of the dungeon and you, you learn how to say foos. And I'm like, oh God, I forgot the memes. This, the, the, the 10 year old memes are suddenly <laughs> flooding back to me. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was a, that was a moment where I realized I was like in in some meaningful way. Oh, a thing I can say, I don't know if this is a problem for American ears. What the fuck is up with the accents, Bruh, I don't know. <laughs> so I don't know. So Game of Thrones made a very sensible decision to decide that fantasy sounds British and then cast a lot of British actors doing British accents uh-huh. in their setting. Every single time a British-accented nominally character pronounces an R in this game, it fucking throws <laughs> me for a loop. Never mind... <laughs> never mind every single time they come up with, like, weird Mediterranean bullshit that I'm not actually supposed to be able to tell where it's from. Um... Like, American approximation of Nordic, fine, whatever. You can get away with something there. But, like, when everyone is supposed to talk like this, because they're a mage, but a very British mage, but then they suddenly pronounce their R's, <laughs> and you end up with this mid-Atlantic weirdness. Um, <laughs> I, I noticed it with Tolf there, who's the, my sidekick at the, 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 the mage place. It, it happens literally everywhere. All the deities, all the deities, all the day, all the deities are meant to talk in this haughty voice, or they're meant to be female and seductive, or whatever. And like, all of them, all of them, bar like two, are clearly American voice actors trying their very damn best. Uh huh. <laughs> oh god, I d I don't know if like are the prices higher? Is it a union issue? I don't know. It feels so weird and so intention, well, so lax, loose, I don't know. It, every single element of this game is meant to like make it even harder for it to pass, particularly it's racial politics because the accents are meant clearly to be this like window into the like geographical and racial separation of people. It just doesn't fucking work because all the time I'm thinking like, oh God, they're attempting and straining at the bit to differentiate themselves and can't, like physically cannot. Um, yeah. God. Game's weird. <laughs> I'm gonna, Game's weird. I'm gonna keep playing it. I'm gonna keep playing it because I want to see where it goes. Because, like, quite clearly, if there is going to be white nationalist mythology, uh, like, Nazi mythology bullshit, it's got to culminate in, like, some moment of, like, racial cleansing? Question mark? Or becoming racial figurehead as outsider? Question mark? I want to see what it does, what it forces you to do. Whether it's attempt, attempts to literally say, like, well, fundamentally the character is a Nord no matter how you play it. Um, or whether there is, like, 
interesting things that can bounce off it in literally any way. But like, God, fuck. Um, and yeah, when it, when it does cool courier messages and cool inventory management and cool books and occasionally good visuals. I, I also, yeah, the engine. I don't, I'm not going to say like, te- I remember exactly what the what the circumstances were like 10 years old but I swear that like there are games that had better set pieces and better like visual design 10 years ago and it might just be Bethesda is kind of janky in the way it builds environments and visual stuff but like man it's just it's it's weird it's bad it's weird whatever this isn't this is enough yeah yep basketball basketball okay let's fucking move on let's fucking move on so Okay. We should... Uh, we haven't podcasted since the first round of the playoffs. I want to just quickly go through um, the other conference semi-series before we get to the one that we're upset about. Just so we can, like... I I, I don't have a ton to say about Utah Clippers. Do you? Uh, so, I mean, we've seen the first game. We've seen the first game, and, like... Oh, I'm not, I'm I'm not even talking about Clippers-Phoenix. I'm talking about Utah Clippers. Sorry, I brain fired for yeah. a second there. Um, well, I think I do have a little bit to say, which is that, like, fundamentally, Utah was shown up in the ways that I fully expected them to be, which is that, like, it's not that Rudy Gobert was shown up individually. It was that this team had no way of beating dribble penetration and perimeter offense, like... It was a team yeah. designed around Rudy Gobert being the only defensive anchor to a team of otherwise like useful, mixed, creative, offensive players who like were fairly exploitable defensively. And fundamentally, like as soon as the Clippers went five out, there was nothing they could do to stop Gobert basically being caught with either like helping at the rim to avoid giving up open layups, or the amount of corner threes. The amount of corner threes they gave up in game seven was like biblical. Um and that's just like Utah were exploited in not an individual way, but in a very obvious team way. And I think like team as constructed is never going to be better than that. And that secondarily, like the the fact that it happened without Kawhi is probably indicative that this was like uh, an indication of their true level rather than like some weird wacky bullshit where they didn't perform to spec. Like they were always exploitable. It took a while for teams to, for the Clippers to figure out exactly how and eventually they were. Um, I I have spent a lot of time clowning the Clippers. Mm-hmm. A lot of time. Yeah. Uh, I've spent a lot of time clowning Paul George specifically. Good for him for proving me wrong. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm very happy so for him. Say this, like, I, I don't know that he's like proved me wrong, nah, capital letters. But yeah. like, good for him showing up in a playoff series and like leading that team to to winning that series. Yeah, I also, I also don't want to give him too much credit because fundamentally, like, he was the best player on a team that won a conference semis. But also, like, the reason they won was not him individually. It was like everyone being able to dribble penetrate against their man and get to the rim. And mm-hmm. Reggie Jackson and Nicola Batum hitting all their shots. Like, he did well, but he did no better than, like, high-level... I'm not going to say high-level roleplay. That's a bit too much. But he wasn't, like... He was given the toughest assignments and the toughest jobs, and he did them adequately. It's just that, like, the Clippers just had better players and better matchups for the across the board by the, yeah. by the time he got to the end of the series. Like, it wasn't Paul George being special and running off screens and hitting, like absurd shots 
They got a bunch of really good shots. He was a part of that, but he wasn't like doing special things. Um, All right. Yeah. Uh, Thoughts about Denver Phoenix? Denver Phoenix, better team one, fundamentally. Like Denver, better would, team one. Denver would not at the fucking races, and they were deeply exploitable. Um, Chris Paul being out. I, with I think COVID's, even with yeah. I think I think if Denver had Murray, this would have gone more. But, but no, I think no Phoenix still would have won. No more than six at best. Like yeah. Denver, like could, I think Denver could have won some games, but I don't think they could have won the series. No, like this, Jokic in interview said like eight in defense him all right. Like when you can actually key up on matchups and you don't have a guy who can burn you in a, a two uh, two man game in the way you have with Murray. Like Jokic is not impossible to slow down, and everyone else on that team is not near good enough to to like counterbalance the fact that like they don't have a two man game that can like rip teams apart. And like also. So, like, we knew... We know who Chris Paul is. Yeah, we do. We yeah. we started to get an understanding last year of who Devin Booker is. Mm-hmm. I did not know that DeAndre Ayton was, like, an all-NBA center. <laughs> yeah. Know? He's in this sort of, like... I didn't know he's, that. He's in this sort of, like, low all-star tier where, like, he is not doing incredibly difficult things, but what he is doing, he's doing extremely well. In which case, yeah. like, there's a there's a thought in the back of my mind that these might actually be the right the, the centers you actually want on your roster, and like they they spent a number one pick to get him, which is I'm not gonna say a mistake given they could have had Luca. Um, it was a mistake. Like fundamentally, you would rather have Luca and you would rather have more talent and creation because you can find a center to do eighty percent of the Andre Ayton's job. But mm-hmm. this is a thing that came out with Bam, and Bam's also gonna get paid, so it might actually not be the case. Like. <laughs> I have I have this feeling that like Miles Turner is going to get traded to a good team sometime soon, and we'll see him in this position. That like fundamentally, what you want is to pay your center sub start money to do a good job defending teams, and potentially like having one other skill, be it passing or outside shooting, that like means that he can like be an offensive plus or part of an effective offensive system. And you do not want to spend any more money on the center position because you need to be mm-hmm. at either Joel Embiid or Jokic's level to actually be effective as a center. And like, yeah. So, the, and that like, who, what's the alternative model? The alternative model is like, bam, which is you hopefully get for cheap a center who doesn't monopolize the ball or your offensive system, but can be a you can be a part of um, a, a useful team. Problem is like people recognize how useful like a bam or a nominally Pascal Siakam can be. Um, so yeah, Siakam's truly a four. He can't be the the anchoring five so it's a slightly different case with him but like similarly like not the offensive centerpiece but like hugely effective part of a larger system and like that's what you hope and hopefully that guy doesn't get paid more than 20 million and if he does get paid more mm-hmm. than 20 million you're overpaying for less talent if you'd rather pay Embiid the max than pay Bam the max but like if you can get Aiton for 20 million a year and then build a team mm-hmm. where he's the nailed on star but he's not meant to be the player who's like super talented he's meant to be like a component yeah. on the offense and like the one of the bricks in a good defense like one of the anchors in a good defense that might just be a better team building decision um was it, 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 it's fast forwarding very slightly but like compare draymond green to ben simmons as like defensive tools people like draymond mm-hmm. is smaller Similar, similar length. Like they're both very, very like long people. Like Draymond has freaky long arms, but like Ben is poppier. He is taller. He's very similar lateral quickness. He's got pretty all right instincts. Not as nearly as good as Draymond because Draymond is preternatural. But like 
Draymond is the sort of player that you can pay 20 to 25 million and he can be a single-handed defense and then also be one of the cogs and one of the greatest offenses of all time. And like, yes. that's the standard you need to be on on both ends to justify giving a non-offensive player. And like, I class Aiton in this to some degree. Like, he, Aiton is a player who could take mid-ranges and has been told not to. <laughs> like, he's been told not to be a creator. If you're not a creator in some regard, that's the standard you need to be at to be a plus high-level, like, late-series playoff center slash big. And that's a very, very limited set of people to be. Ben Simmons is not one of those players. Aiton might end up being one of those players. We'll wait and see how he goes in the next series. Yeah, that was my bit oh. on DeAndre Aiton. Um, I'm impressed. I'm sure. very impressed. Because I, I feel like we're going to have a lot to say about the East. Do you have any thoughts about Phoenix Clippers? I didn't get to see that game yeah, yet. Yeah, neither, um, neither. I saved up my watching for the, the Philly match. Um, by reputation, but just by like reporting, Booker went off. You expect him to because the Clippers guards are exploitable. <laughs> like Reggie Jackson needing to be on the floor for offense means he's got easy enough places to pick on, on defense. Um, yeah. If... If the if Phoenix could win a game without Chris Paul, and they're going to get Chris Paul back, and Kawhi might have a problem with his ACL, yeah, and I don't, I if I'm the Clippers, I would assume we're not seeing Kawhi again this season. Nope. And if we do, that's great. But like, I would just assume I would game plan without Kawhi in mind to some extent. Yeah, I, I'm worried. I'm I'm really worried yeah, if I'm the Clippers. And I mean, fundamentally, I think like just in terms of tools, I think. Phoenix just might have more now. Um, they have two elite offensive creators who can bust everything the Clippers can do defensively except five-out switching. Um, the Clippers cannot play their true center. Um, Ibaka is mm-hmm. out, so they can't have a switching big. Um, the best they can do is like one of the like Morris or Batum at center and like go small, um, which is how they won against Utah. Um that might not. That might be a thing where they get into shootouts and they're a very good shooting team and they'll win that way one, uh, once or twice. But like, mm-hmm. man, they've got the, the, the like in terms of a setup to deal with the the, the matchups that the Clip, Clippers offer. Like a mobile rim running center that can deal to some degree with the um, dribble penetration, um, shooting four, uh, Mikhail Bridges to stick on Paul George. And two of the very best, um, like, pick-and-roll ball handlers in the league right now. Yeah, like, I'm taking Phoenix in this one. Pretty handy. I'm taking Phoenix. The other thing is that, like, I just don't think Phoenix fucks around. Like, I've watched this team play enough now that I'm like... They're put together so much more effectively than pretty much everyone else left. Like, they... Yeah, like, they're a really cohesive squad, and... I think I just think Devin Booker's ready to kill dudes out there. Yeah. Like I think he just doesn't give a shit, <laughs> you know. <sighs> and and he'll do that like you know like that Kobe shit where he'll like take a really tough shot in your face just to like show you that he can, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I mean like f- the, the fact that he is doing that, but is also being efficient about it. Like that's new. That's mm-hmm. stunning to me. Like yes, the the fact that he is in the place he is is just kind of yeah i'm stunningly impressed honestly because 
Yeah, I, I, I thought I thought Booker I was did not be know a... what to think of this Phoenix team because I didn't watch them in the regular season period. Yeah, and like I watched them a bit, but like mostly because I I had like pangs about not having Mikel Bridges on the Sixers because like we want Mikel Bridges on the we would have loved Mikel Bridges on the Sixers basically. <laughs> just to be clear, um, just to be clear about the backstory here for people who might not be familiar, um, the Sixers in I think the 2018 draft uh, trade down from 10 to 15 or so, in which mm-hmm. they got a complexly traded pick from Phoenix. At 10, Phoenix mm-hmm. selected Mikhail Bridges, who was shockingly left off the all-defensive teams. He should be an all-defensive player right now, and is just basically, like, knockdown shooter who's an elite, elite perimeter defender, and big, like, six foot seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and they picked Zaya Williams. Zaya Williams... Oh, sorry. It was, uh, it was uh, Zaya Williams as a prospect in this draft. Zaya Smith. Zaya Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sixers picked Zaya Smith, 16th level, sorry. Um, Zaya Smith almost died as the result of an allergic reaction before he joined up with the team. Um, basically hasn't, um, like, been at all a useful player at even, like, G League level and is now, like, out of the system entirely. Um, the pick they got for trading down turned it basically into Tobias Harris, with a bunch more assets. It was one of the most disastrous... I would much, much rather have cost-controlled Mikel Bridges and potentially a bunch of space to sign some players in the the following seasons than not having Mikel Bridges and ending up with Toby. Um, God love him, but, like, no. No! (laughs) No! Um, yeah, I, I'm. I'm gonna. There are so many like 2016 to 2019, 2020, even era Sixers moves that are going to like haunt me. If the Sixers no, never win a championship, and one of them is going to be yep. not signing, not fucking. It was they picked Mikael yep. Bridges and then traded down. Mikael Bridges went through interview processes. His mother works for the team. He was a Villanova player. Everything was perfect. Everything mm-hmm. was perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, the Suns are good. Suns are legitimately a good team. They do not have the the look of a normal NBA title winner, and it might just be enough because it's a fucking strange season. Um. So, mm-hmm. Bucks Nets. Kevin Durant is the that best. That was a great series. Kevin Durant is the that best was player in the league, and it's not even close right now. Yeah, no. So, <laughs> uh, the I just want everyone to shut the fuck up about Kevin Durant. Yeah. I just like. I I just want everyone to shut the fuck up. He's the best player in the league by by far. Like it's ridiculous. I'm. Come he came back from a fucking from, Achilles from an Achilles and like averaged what like 46 minutes a game in this series on on 35 points a game like and uh, game 5 was incredible game game 7 was fucking incredible like did you uh, 
He was literally like his shoes being too big away from winning that game. And he got the he he airballed that last three, but like you watched Kevin Durant take a three and you're like it's over. He played like until he played until it was Oh my god. I'm pulling, you, I'm pulling. You just a... see Kevin Durant have the ball on the last possession of the game, and you're like, the Nets are going to win. It was shocking that he airballed it. Like it was. I, 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 I'm going to come back at that to say not that it was shocking that he airballed it. He played 53 minutes, having played, he played 53 minutes. He played every single minute of this, every single second of this basketball game. James Harden did as well, and it's yes. remarkable that he was like at all useful, at all. And a, with a grade two hamstring. Yeah. Cam <laughs> um, Durant basically put the other player who played ridiculous minutes for the for the Brooklyn Nets was uh, Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown played fifty two minutes. <laughs> the, the sort of talent drop off is like genuinely absurd. Um, mm-hmm. The only reason, <laughs> the only reason that. Um, the the this series is anything at all. It's because every time Brooklyn have won, it's because KD has absolutely put them on his back. And like uh-huh. we underestimate the fact that like fifty two minutes of being the only creator on a team is going to mm-hmm. wreck people. Um, yes, you remember the 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 Dame Lillard explosion game. The last three he hit in that game in the fourth quarter, I think he banked it in. Um, it was like way mm-hmm. high on the um the backboard and it banks in. And he doesn't really mm. like play out the rest of the game at a particularly high level because he's like he's already scored his fifty plus mm. and he's never really going to get the energy to like sustain that level for the rest of the game. Um, same thing mm. happened with Luca against the the Clips. Like he has extraordinary talent and shows it off and torches people until it gets to the fourth quarter where he just doesn't have it anymore. And beat it was really obvious with because he's injured. Like he has pop for about five minutes whenever he comes off a rest and then he just grinds to a halt and he cannot face up he cannot drive people anymore like every oh god at the start of the overtime um uh start uh, was it start of the fourth quarter even sorry um in the sixth of the Lance series you could just see him he was taking people off the dribble it was beautiful it was great and then he just can't anymore because he does not have the physical capacity to do it Kevin Durant came off an Achilles, came back halfway through this year uh-huh. and was playing 53 minutes a game, being the guy scoring turnaround absurd Dame Lillard shots at the end of the yeah. shot clock to keep Brooklyn alive. When, I, when f- I say it yeah. was shocking he, he missed it, what I mean is that, like... It seemed predestined. Played, it seemed predestined. He played 53 minutes, and I was still surprised because it seems like if the if Kevin Durant has the ball, it's going in. Yeah. Like, it just... I was like, I didn't know he was capable of missing. I, he's he's Kevin Durant. <laughs> Something's gone wrong if that's happening, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, no, I'm just looking for the... The, the the general thing is that like the the box the nets were absolutely done for when their stars went down the fact yes. that they were alive at all was entirely down to Kem Durant being the best player in the league I'm still yes. shocked given the talent disparity like how rough Milwaukee made it this should not have been as much uh, as hard work as it was. 
and yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so the so like the the Bucks go through, and they're probably title favorites now based on talent and the fact that they have they, an easier conference final and probably a decent matchup in the potential NBA finals. But like, man, they're making rough work of it. Well. We'll circle back around to this because I want to talk. I want to talk about this, but it's only fair. We got to talk about the Sixers Hawks. Yeah. So I, I texted you the other day. I was like, I cannot believe that I got off work and read the words, "The Sixers force a game seven. That is not something. I thought this series was gonna go five. I, I thought the mm, series. I yeah. I thought we were gonna win in five. I thought we were gonna win in six. And after game five, after Philly lost game five, I was like, I hate this team. Yeah. I, I hate this team. And I, I hate this team. I hate that I'm so invested in this team. I hate that I thought we could win it this year. I, I don't know because Embiid's health is the thing that it is. Yeah. And I don't know if we will ever get a better season from Joel Embiid. He was the, and, he was the, the most impactful player like whenever he was on the court in the entire league this year. Like only po- Yes. Like Stefan Jokic can run him close but like no, nah, I think Embiid like puts like put the third best defense in the league on his shoulders and was mm-hmm. one of the most offensive scorers and generated a good offense pretty much single-handedly like no other player could like, say just they an could, incredible two-way player. Just no like, other player could do the same things on both ends, and he pretty much mm-hmm. matches up with the top tier on offense, and he's mm-hmm. in a class of two on defense. And I, I don't know if we'll ever get a better season from him. And we lost to a team that I don't think is as good as our team is because, like, we choked. Like I, I, I think. That we are a better team than the Hawks, but the Hawks played better than us, you know? And, like, I, I gotta hand it, like, I, I have to hand it to them, like, they just, they showed up and, like, played really well and, and you know, proved me the fuck wrong because I, like... They figured out the man, shit that works and they did it. They figured out what worked yes. and did it. Um... Philly is a weird team, um, and they have certain exploitable elements. Like Joel Embiid is many things, but a perimeter switch defender is probably not one of them. In which no. case, like <laughs> the the ability for Trey Young to be one of the top three pick and roll operators in the league, like Chris Paul might be in that top tier. I'm not sure, but it's like him, Luca, and Steph basically. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Dame again, like can do the reads, but he's in the same sort of like finessed operator. He's he's a scorer uh, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 like the basic idea of like Trey runs a team against a defense that can only pay drop coverage, and yeah, they can stick very good defenders on him, but he's still going to get his or at least set up players to get theirs. It's just like yeah, that's a good recipe to win. Yeah, the Sixers needed Joel Embiid to be a bully to to like have the reliable like alternative to the well like th- to have a thing of their own. They needed one of several things to happen. 
They needed one of Embiid is healthy enough to bully the people that Atlanta can put on him. And he was that for the first mm. two games. And they managed to lose yeah. one of those games miraculously. And they shouldn't have, um, fundamentally. No. They should not have lost either of those games in Philly. Um, it was a mess no. that they did. Um, or they needed the, the clear mismatches that Tobias Harris had against the fact... Well, they didn't have DeAndre Hunter. So it meant that like he was either being guarded by like Danilo Gallinari... Or John Collins, both of whom he has a, he has a, he has a like a quickness and a <sighs> space creating advantage against, and he needed to be a good scorer, like a twenty five plus game plus a game scorer, mm-hmm. or needed Ben Simmons to like do anything, do anything. <laughs> ben Simmons, I, I'm going to pull up the athletic hat, uh, uh, Derek Bodner. He's, one of my favourite beat writers in any sport ever, frankly. He's very good-natured and very humorous about the way he does this. Um, let's have a look at the the little... The, the stat line that's going around that I'm in love with... I'm not. I'm really not. But, like, I have to be because... Yeah. The stat line that's going around a lot is that um, in seven games... Um, Ben Simmons attempted three shots in the fourth quarter. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going for. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the moment, the entire moment, Embiid said it himself. Embiid's quote was, the turning point was when we had an open dunk and came away with one point. Mm-hmm. Ben Simmons gets the ball in transition, drives mm-hmm. off the wing, beats his man, sees a shadow move um, sees a ghost <laughs> is haunted by the memory of Markel false <laughs> and decides to pass it off to Matisse Teibel who is a worse finisher in worse position I'm just googling Matisse Teibel height real quick be right back <laughs> also google Matisse Teibel field goal percentage like and free throw percentage Christ He's not a good free throw shooter. He's not a good finisher. And he's in worse position. And he passes off an open dunk. Open dunk. Dunk. Like, Ben Simmons is six foot ten. One thing he can reliably do is be big and put the ball in the fucking basket with relative ease. And he's so in his own fucking head. And, like, this is the only conclusion I have is that he just, like, has becomes so terrified of getting fouled and having to shoot free throws and the mm-hmm. like he in some way cannot use his physicality because he's just getting blown for offensive fouls um and like he cannot approach contact of any sort because either it's an offensive foul or a defensive foul and both of those are terrible outcomes that he uh-huh. will completely misread situations which is the one thing that you hope he can do magnificently is like understand it's the, game, the thing he's good at <laughs> read the game play make pass control the pace run the floor finish and transition like that's his that should be his game his game should be as an open court playmaker and finisher and he can't do that when he's in his own head and that means mm-hmm. he can't be on the fucking floor at the end of a playoff game when the Sixers were down two possessions in the last two minutes Ben Simmons was not on the floor um I so <laughs> I Ben Simmons had five points in game seven. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna go look. What did what was Ben's points per game um, in this series? It was about ten, I think. I think it was about ten. I that seems higher than I'm not was. saying. <laughs> I'm not saying that Ben needs to score his. What did he score in the regular season? Like eighteen. I mean, let me just pull up his stats. Um, per game, uh, he got 14 points in the regular season. That was a career low, in fact. Um, if if he had scored 14 points per game in this series, if he had scored, if he had scored t- 14 points in Game Seven, we could win. I, I, I. I I <laughs> yeah. Um, I hate this team. So I mean, this is the thing. So like, when you have two really good young players, you want to hope that they can build around each other. You want to hope that they can synergize. That you can build the rest of the roster to make advantage to take advantage of the fact you've got two young superstars who can maybe be the like engine for great success in the future. Joel Embiid is so good, and Ben Simmons is so problematic with a, such a good player, that I think that's just out the window. We're past the point where it even matters. We're, we're past mm-hmm. the point where it even matters with the sort of like agent team control thing. Because like, you said we may never get as good Embiid again. You have to hope that next season he's also going to be like MVP candidate, anchor of an excellent defense, and an elite, elite interior scorer. To the point yeah. where like, I hope it so. Doesn't, we, we very well could. And it, at that point, like, your task isn't to, like, maximize the primes of two young stars. It's you have potentially the best player in the league. You have to build a title contender around him. And, like, the mm-hmm. fact that one of your potential or one of your current all-stars is not, like, compatible with that, you just... It's a different calculation to what it was a year ago. Like, a year ago, I was on the yeah. Ben Simmons train because, like, he was, at that point... 23 and still very much to like showing flashes of incredible like penetration and body control and inside mm. interior finishing and the free throws yeah. weren't so much of a problem and then he decided to shoot 33 she shot one in three on free throws through this series um that's just like fun worse than worse than Shaq's worst playoffs worse than wilt chamberlain's worst playoffs yeah like fundam- fundamentally like he is not a player who you could sustain that level of offensive awfulness at a high level. Like, he will either get yeah. hacked or he will, like, like give up so much in being an offensive negative that it doesn't really matter what he can contribute in other ways. Because what you will gain back from having a less defensively solid but, like, offensively competent player is so much greater. So much greater. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like this is this is the thing is that it makes me feel dumb because I really thought that you could build a championship team around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, and I just don't think that's true. I just think like Ben Simmons has proven me wrong because like I. I uh, I just I hate this team and I hate that I care. Um what was I going to say? I um 
What was I gonna say? I I oh, this was the thing I was gonna say. Is I the other thing is that you if you watched the and I try not to put a lot of stock into these things, you know. But if you watched the post game interviews with Embiid and Doc Rivers and and Ben Simmons, and Embiid is like, yeah, I I think Ben kind of fucked this up for us and doc rivers is like you know ben and i need to go to the gym and ben rivers is er, ben rivers ben simmons is out there like yeah it was a tough game and they played hard and you know i have some stuff to work on i don't know like i try not to put too much stock into these things but i just think ben simmons like doesn't have the right attitude about stuff and that's like you can see it on the court it's, yeah, it's, you can see it's not that, even like, that like he's scared of it's not even that sort of voluntaristic like if he just believed something different or he like got his mental situation right he might just have this combination of like what he's capable of doing and the situation that is being dem- like what the situation demands of him that he cannot cope with like that might simply be mm-hmm. like something that he cannot manage and that's like mm-hmm. not a thing to be like it's not a thing to like blame him for. Like, if he's not the player that he was potentially like dreamed to be, then you mm-hmm. you simply like accept that and you figure out a way to cope with that. Which means like mm-hmm. finding other playmakers or using them in a different way. Yeah. Um. I. Yeah, I don't want to be like. Well, if Ben Simmons just had a better attitude, they would have won. Yeah, this, 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 but this, also, this isn't I guess fucking talk radio bullshit. I guess what I feel like is that, like... The, like, the thing I just talked about with Devin Booker, where I feel like Devin Booker, um, like, just plays, like, really aggressively and really, like... He has you know, ego and arrogance that drive his, um, his success. And I, I think maybe on some level to be a professional athlete, you have to have ego and arrogance and you have to be kind of like a no, I'm better than everyone out here, sort of mentality a little bit. And, like, I think Ben just, like, I don't know. Like, I just saw that post-game interview, and I was like, oh, so he's not going to try in the offseason. Yeah, he's so... Not, like, I didn't, get, I didn't get the impression that he's going to go and, like, try and fix the holes in his game in the offseason. I get the impression that he's going to play like he always has. It's weird, because we've always had this thing of, like, is he shooting with the right hand? Um, and that being like a boogeyman for like, is he actually working on that shot? Because the shot's apparently the panacea. And I don't think the shot's the panacea. Mm-hmm. I think like on a basic level, the Ben Sims of a little while ago that like could make some free throws and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, had uh, had like the, the confidence to go into contact to finish. That would have been mm-hmm. in this series at least adequate. Wouldn't have been good. Still would have fucked up their offensive sets a lot, especially with Embiid so limited. But like, that at least gives you capacity to do stuff in a way that like the the, the Simmons we got now was so like utterly hobbled yeah. by his mental issues or like these like confidence issues. Um, yes. The, the 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 like there are so many different competing things because like is he going to go away and work on it is a very different question from like will he be in his head consistently for the rest of time is a very different thing from like can his free throw free throw shooting regress to be like 65 70 percent in which 
showcased like no he's still a very functional useful player it's also a very different question from like does he have the confidence of his team anymore um like when mb's making those comments like not naming simmons but pointing the finger at like those moments where he absolutely blows it and that being like a crucial moment in the game like mb mm-hmm. knows how good he is he has to he is one of those players with the absolute like 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 gut feeling that he is a monster who cannot be stopped he is an absolute mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. He, he, mm-hmm. he is like so far and away more skilled more athletically capable more intelligent and more like uh like just rounded as a basketball player than everyone he's going to come up against and he, that he can beat them and he knows yes. that because he's fucking done it all season and that he can look yes. at the team around him and say like this is good enough or like fitted well enough to get me to where I'm going because he obviously wants to he talks very openly about like wanting to to be not only the best player in the league but to like drag Philly with him at the helm to titles like he might just yeah. look at Ben Simmons and see a guy like uh, whether it's through lack of skills or lack of confidence like he cannot be on a team that takes me to where I want to go and that's just like you saw what happened with Jimmy with the the like it feels strange to put Ben Simmons and Andrew Wiggins in the same sentence because like Ben Simmons is you know a, what you're not the first person to do it though I mean like, this is the <laughs> thing like Simmons is a more talented player than Wiggins I think a more effective player than Wiggins has been at any point in his career um, mm-hmm. a more intelligent player suddenly has the sort of like all the soft stuff about basketball playing that you think correlates with the ability to like be insightful about your own game to improve it over time that's stuff that Wiggins doesn't have like Wiggins has awful shot selection awful court vision awful collaborative play with teammates couldn't do defense until he got taught it by Draymond Green um, like mm-hmm. all the sorts of like Though the stuff that gets packaged up with like basketball IQ, the sort of like combination of cognitive mapping, um, like uh, understanding of concepts and schemes stuff, like he was crap at that. He was crap. Yeah. And Ben Simmons is not that player because his defensive instincts are good and he reads the court exceptionally. He's an incredible playmaker. His passing instincts are incredible. He's a top when they're not like passing up an open dunk. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like he should be the player with the sort of like background skills that make him good at understanding what his game is, how he can unlock other bits of it by being good at certain things. And like improving it over time. And it just hasn't happened. And like maybe that's because mm-hmm. I'm like being very assumptive about assuming that the sort of like the long-term skill of like critical understanding is a is a very different one to the like in the moment stuff of self-awareness but like you talk about players like lebron or chris paul who are like exceptional at it who are like hyper aware not only of um the court and the management of it but also like the off the court stuff they need to to to, like take advantage of the skills they do have like there are every time like LeBron I have seen articles about people describing what his prep is like but also the way he like analytically reads defenses on the fly he sounds like one of the most like intuitive and like like there are there are like savants in any discipline and LeBron is clearly a savant as well as being one of the greatest athletes of his generation Um, Mm -hmm. and that like you read that stuff and you just see the continuity between like LeBron knowing what works in terms of scheme, in terms of his own, like the, the things he needs to do to get to, to get his own things going. 
um, in terms of like effectiveness moment to moment and then also like what he needs to build into his game to be the best version of himself and like he's mm-hmm. gained all of those things like he has changed yeah. from being the like rim attacking like 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 the not straight line driving but like attack the rim first collapse defenses to like a very skilled post playmaker to like adding outside shooting to his game like he has become a, the fantastic rounder player because different situations he's understood and has become that player to like exploit the advantages that he has the fact that Ben Simmons has not meaningfully developed in any of those areas outside maybe some of his defensive defensive work because like he is a better defender clearly he had all the tools and it turned out to be a very very good effective defender once he put it all together the fact he has not improved is so many warning bells around it so many warning bells and this is just going to continue if we don't do something and and the 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 problem is i don't think that ben simmons needs to shoot threes i don't think that ben simmons needs to shoot mid-ragers it might be nice i i i think it would be very helpful if he could shoot threes for sure i mean no one's gonna say no uh, the (laughs) the the problem is not that ben simmons is offensively neutral for a long time i thought that his passing and playmaking kind of, like, neutralized his deficiencies in scoring, you know, that made him, like, a a somewhat positive offensive player who could be more positive. I think Atlanta showed us that he's a net negative on offense. Even with the playmaking and like, doing, being half-decent, yeah. Like, I also think this was one of yeah. his worst playmaking series. Like, I think he didn't show out any of that stuff at all because he was so reluctant to drive. He was so reluctant to attack off the dribble or out the mm-hmm. post. Like, it just didn't happen. Uh, yeah, um, and, and, and... I mean, that's taking him out of the situations where he can be effective. But, I mean, like, the comparison I made earlier was Draymond Green. Like, the the high-level mm-hmm. defense that Draymond can provide is better than what Simmons can do. Even as a per- elite perimeter defender, like, being the quarterback or one of the, the anchors of an elite defense is a more valuable thing than being a very good perimeter defender. And secondarily, yes. like... Draymond knowing how to fit alongside other elite talent makes him uh, offensively a vastly more um, effective player on offense than Simmons has been at all in the playoffs. Like, he has never been able to figure out how to fit in a playoff series, like, at all. Yeah, and, and, like, I, I, so, and I don't think of... So it's just, uh, just to finish that I, thought, like, the, it might come a time where, where, like, you conclude that, like, that cannot happen. Like, you couldn't even make Draymond effective next to Embiid. And, like, that's a reasonable conclusion, in which case you've got to get rid of him. But, like, I, I don't think that's a necessary conclusion at all. Um, I don't think that ever had to be the case. And, like, we also missed out the two, three years of development alongside each other that could, like, give them the chemistry to become really effective with each other. And he just never grew in, in like, capacity or skill to make that happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like... Draymond, I think, is a... I, I, Draymond is not, like, some elite scorer. No. Draymond is a positive on offense because, like, you can pass to him and trust him to either make the right pass in return or, like, be enough of a scorer that, like, defenses have to respect him. Yeah, and, like, this is, again... Wh- ben sh- Simmons... Yeah. In, in this series brings your offense to a screeching halt every time he has the ball in his hands, which is a problem because he's the point guard. Yeah. yeah. 
But yeah, yeah, that. And and last year we all thought like this was one of the few great. This is one of the few coaching choices that I have thought Brett Brown made that was really good and interesting was put Ben Simmons at the forward and have another point guard. The Sixers just don't have another point guard as good as Ben Simmons is, and so I don't think you can take him out of that point guard spot. The problem is that, like, he's also apparently not a good point guard because you need him to be able to do anything. Literally anything. Yeah, no, like, fundamentally, like, the second best defensive player in the series was Seth Curry. Seth Curry shot the fucking lights Mm -hmm. out. And um, mm-hmm. he's still not a player that you can put the ball in, the, in his hands 50% of your trips down the floor and expect him to, like, create offense in anything other than, like, a two-man game. Like, him and JJ Redick fulfilled similar roles for the team in that, like, yeah, they can do a bit more ball handling than you expect, but they're doing the, their ball handling with a look to score, with a look to, like, isolate out two defenders and beat them rather than to, like, set up the whole team's system of offense. Um, he well, doesn't and- have the passing vision or the height or the athleticism to do the job that, like, I don't know, a Carl Lowry does. And you know what? That's fair, because nobody was asking Seth Curry to do that. That's not why you got Seth Curry on the team. You got Seth Curry on the scheme, uh, on the team, to score. You got him to you shoot ben the Simmons fucking lights to- out, and he did that more than enough. He did that. He did what we- he did what we needed him to do. Ben Simmons is the person who did not do the yeah. things that we needed him to do, honestly, that we have seen him do before. Yeah, I mean, he couldn't honestly, do the like, stuff that we know he can Seth do. Seth impressed me so much in this series that, like, the fact that the first Daryl Morey trade was Josh Richardson for Seth Curry, like, makes me more confident that like the team building is going to go half decently because like quite clearly this was a need not only fulfilled but like they got a better player in return they got more production out of seth curry than they could ever even have imagined and like Mm -hmm. still on a good value contract for another year like he will be a he will continue to be a very valuable member of this team for a while now like that's a good team building decision it's just they need more of them because they've made so many bad ones uh, um, I don't. I can't, we we I talked can't. a lot about Ben Simmons. I just want to like divert and say, Tobias Harris missed an unconscionable number of fairly easy layups in this game. Yeah. Um, Tobias Harris is an infuriating basketball player because he is six foot ten <laughs> and has like incredible body control. He should be like an uh-huh. exceptional scorer, and he just continues to blow bunnies, like. Absolutely out of nowhere, just like, no, can't I can't remember how to make a layup anymore, uh, and that would just like plague him for five games out of seven. Like occasionally he'll go off and hit score thirty, and then pretty much everything else is just like he is a mediocre finisher and just like bad scorer, and it just you, breaks. His game breaks. The, the, I need a handshake meme of um like Tobias Harris. And Chris Middleton, and they're just like agreeing to infuriate their fan bases by sometimes being one of the best players in the league and sometimes not. <laughs> sometimes forgetting how to make a free throw line jumper. How forget? No, I mean, okay. That, to be honest, Tobias Harris continues to be an okay scorer from the mid range. It's the it's the fucking layups. Just not being able to make a fucking layup. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, um, the fact that we are paying like 65, 70 million to Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris and Seth Curry was outperforming them on the offensive end handily. 
um, mm-hmm. is just like a, an absolute indictment of how the team building went up until more, the Mori era started in Philadelphia. In which case that like, I don't, like, Simmons is, we'll talk about trades in a second, but like, Tobias Harris is not going to move because no one will want his contract, quite simply. Like, he's a valuable player of sorts, like, near all caliber level of scorer in the regular season, but just like, no, he cannot be consistently a high-level scorer for you in a playoff series. Like, that's not a thing he's capable mm-hmm. of doing. He is far too inconsistent and far too reliant on the sorts of shots that people can take away. Like, <laughs> you can just, like, okay, fine. If he was the only interior player in a five-out system, well, in a four-ish out system, maybe he would have enough space to get even cleaner looks. But my guess is, like, mm-hmm. no, he's always going to take difficult shots from difficult angles in tightish spaces. And he's going to hit a reasonable number of them to be a 21-point-a-game scorer. And he's not going to hit enough of them to be elite at what you need him to be. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just an infuriating player to be paying 30-plus million to. And we are paying 30-plus million to him. I, I love Toby. I, but I, I want would, Toby to I, be so It's just so the contract good. is bad. I mean... The contract is bad. He, that's the problem. I mean, I also think the role is bad. Like, I think he's being tasked with being the only, like, off-the-dribble offensive creator on this team. I mean, Seth Curry can also do it in a different way, but, like, he's the only player who can, like, isolate and beat a player. And he's simply not good enough to be, like, the one guy on your team who does that. He's just not good enough at it. Um, So, like, if he was, like, fourth best player in your team and, like, was the second offensive creator, like, much in the same way that, like, uh, Bogdan Bogdanovic is being put in the role of secondary offensive creator by having Trey Young, like, be able to run an offense... And making right. having secondary playmaking to like pick apart weaker threats and worse mismatches, um, like that's a very valuable player to have because he's being put in a role that gives him an advantage consistently. Um, mm-hmm. That's not a thing that happens because like Toby has been given very difficult matchups consistently, and the way he attacks them is by doing very difficult things. And he's not good enough at those difficult things. He's all right at them. Right. Like, he's all right at being the, like, Kobe imitator. But he's not good enough at them to be elite. In which case, that like, yeah. if you had... Again, like, well, I'm going to start throwing out ideas for names. And, like, Beal at the high end and I, CJ McCollum at the middle. And, like, Kemba and Carl Lowry at the lower end are, like, the, the sorts of people we're thinking about when we talk about, like, potential guard creators. If, here's how bad this season has gone. Yeah. Is that I'm looking back... And I'm like, you know, as mad as I would have been, I kind of wish we had been able to get Harden for Simmons. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly think... <laughs> Much as emotionally... Yeah, that would have been devastating emotionally. I, I, I can only think that from this position, yeah. because if that had happened, I would just be mad all season, and I probably wouldn't care about the Sixers anymore. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the bottom line with that one is that, like, I think the age profile might be even, like, so bad that it becomes intolerable that, like, Harden would give you a a window for a season or two and then just like not be able to do that anymore like he's been he's been good enough in spots that that might not be true that he might still be really effective over time but like i'm not wasn't confident that at all and secondly it sounded like the the rockets wanted people to give up the absolute kitchen sink which is just like no the Sixers have few enough assets and good enough plays in other positions that you don't want to give more than like simmons plus a right first or two um, yeah. In which case that like the tear down is like who's not a, a, a like MVP candidate, but who is like a all MVP to high level all star who's gettable. 
like CJ was a all-star up until an injury this season was a miserable failure in the playoffs but like that was I don't know how much that affects his trade value we'll see Bradley Beal is on a hiding to nothing but like he seems to be committed and locked in with the Wizards um, and they semi-reached a playoff series like (sighs) did they? like they did but did they? (laughs) we'll be wondering this continually forevermore Um, yeah like (laughs) There is going to be all sorts of chat all the way through the summer about potential Ben Simmons trades. Like, that is just the thing that is going to happen. Because, like, he is under control, he's young, and he's an all-star, and he's got genuine value to certain teams. And that, like, Mm -hmm. there are are trades that I could imagine working, but, like, they make... I don't know. I, like, there was all this imagined upside back when Simmons was, like... Uh, not a rookie like in his in his a year after he was drafted he was normally a rookie but we knew a bit about who he was and like the imagined upside that he could potentially have is like a six foot ten magic style point guard who would eventually round out to be like a good interior scorer to pair with like an elite elite center that was so tantalizing as an idea such a weird such a fascinating extraordinary team the like mm-hmm. the loss of the prospect of that is like so much about basketball lives in the potential. So much about basketball lives in the like mm-hmm. what is a what does a prospect really turn into over time? How can you find hidden advantages? How can you find um extraordinary like talents where you didn't know there were? Or how can you take an extraordinary talent and actualize it into like real success? And this is like what's so tantalizing about to some degree the Suns, where like Booker comes right and Aiton turns out to like be justifying that number one pick and Mikhail Bridges turns out to be an excellent front office decision um, or even on a lower level like the Denver like piecing together a team through like low draft picks and intelligent team building um, you hope like this is the this is the, the fantasy that lives in every NBA 2K um, career mode that lives in similarly every football manager sim save every out the park baseball save like the fantasy that like you build the right way and you get rewarded over time and admitting defeat is a really tough thing to do but like no like Simmons is fascinating <laughs> Simmons is extraordinary Simmons is unique and he's also not good enough especially given the context to justify hanging on to him any longer I hate it. I hate it. Um, so, like, I just I, I, the thing that excites me is we've got Maury. We've got Maury in charge, which means yeah, that's the thing. That's he's the thing. going to do something. We don't know what it is. We don't know what sort of thing it's going to be. It's probably going to be aimed at getting another star. Like that tends to be the thing he does. So, like, a roster of I'm assuming Tobias has to stay because his contract is not tradable at this present moment. Like maybe it gets a little while. There are a bunch of players around the league who are potentially moving who you could either get on sign and trade or as they hit free agency or are like potential big movers all of whom become really really interesting very fast um i think they just need one of them to actually come to philadelphia and be someone who can run an offense because like without i'm gonna say something dumb that's a joke i i have two dumb jokes Uh uh-huh say one we could still make Harden for Simmons happen. I've, I've, we've, we've thrown this back around to each other before. Mm, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> Two, this is like less of a joke, but I don't think it makes any sense for Philly, and I don't. I I think it just turns us into a bad team. <laughs> um, <laughs> like clearly, the Lakers need a point guard, and Rich Paul is running that team anyway. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what Philly gets out of that. <laughs> you don't want Dennis Schroeder. Do you not want Dennis Schroeder? No, I really don't. I don't. So, <laughs> if oh I was God. the GM of a team, I would be like, I don't want that guy on our team. I don't. I don't want to pay him whatever the Lakers offered him midseason. No, you know. No, I mean he's just, he turned out to be an absolute fucking dud in the playoffs. It was miserable. So, okay, here's the free agent point uh, point guard uh, class. Chris Paul's got player option. He's probably opting in, or he's re-signing for an extended period. If the if the Suns do well, mm-hmm. that's for forty million. You're not going to get that paid out. Mike Conley's a free agent. No, um, but Utah really need him still because he's one of the few things that like keeps them relevant. I think their systems don't really work without him. I'm expecting him to stay. Kalari is thirty five and he's a free agent. I can expect him to go to another team for cheap, um, not cheap, so that he can just slot into space somehow. But like a sign and trade for Carl Lowry is a real prospect for Philadelphia. I think that's very much on the cards. Yeah, I think I, I feel like that's probably what's gonna happen. One of the many interesting would... options. Um, I, I just want to run through the list very like briskly. Um, Goran Dragic is thirty-five. He was exceptional last playoffs. I don't think you can expect him to come back with that with that um, with that level of play. We'll see no. what happens, but like I don't think you can expect him to be a high-level player contributor, even though he's in that like tier. Paddy Mills is 33. He can be a stopgap option, but I don't think he's good enough to compete in the playoffs. One of the most interesting, Spencer Dinwiddie. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie was good enough in the moments that he's not been injured that I think he could legitimately be a potential solution. Um, another move with Brooklyn. <laughs> which is interesting <laughs> but he's coming off an injury and he's going to be a free agent I think there might be a deal there um, again mm-hmm. sign and trade seems to be the way to go about it he's coming off a, uh, with bird rights in the region of 11 million and I don't think you'd get him for much over that maybe up to like start money at 15 that's genuinely he's 28 he fits the profile and he's genuinely like a perimeter creator I think that could be an option mm-hmm. Lonzo Ball's a restricted free agent I haven't watched enough of the Pelicans and they've been a weird-ass logjam, but I could imagine a version where Lonzo turns out to be not like the solution. And he might have very similar Ben Simmons-y problems of not actually be able to be a creator. And like, that's a thing we've talked about before. But like, I'm not sniffing at the idea that like a cheeky sign and trade for Lonzo Ball isn't a potential route to go. That's terrifying, but like, you know, I I feel like the Pelicans owe the people of New Orleans an apology they, for just They really do. They 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 squandered Chris Paul, they squandered Anthony Davis, and they're in the middle of squandering Zion Williamson. He's, he's literally uh, two years into his deal. He's under team control for five years. And we're literally He's two years in. We're literally already getting he, rumbles about he's not a fan of how they're managing him. Like Oh my god. He's two years in, and I'm still not convinced that he's the player that people think he could be. He might become that player. I just, I just, I'm not convinced. Genuinely, like, um, oh and somehow God. he's still gonna force his way out to the Knicks. Good. So, like, that would be miserable. But like, fundamentally, like, the, what I saw from him this year was like 
a creation ability, like a perimeter ball in hand creation ability that like genuinely makes me think he could be extraordinary. Like undersized Shaq extraordinary, undersized Giannis extraordinary. Um, it won't, it will be in a different way to those players, but like he has the capacity to beat everyone or bully everyone off the dribble in the entire league. Like no one can stop him. And I, th- I think that's genuine. I think genuinely think that could be a real part of his game. Whether he turns, you know, like I think, like he's worse defensively than people expected. I think you need more spacing around him than people like took credit for because he hasn't like come along with the shooting particularly fast. But like the creation ability is real. I think he could be like a absolutely elite ball and hand creator. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I that that's just the, the the vibe I get from looking at him as it is. Um, just there, there there are other ideas. The CJ McCollum trade was the first one that kept popping up on Twitter when I was looking, like. Ben for C- that would be fun. Ben for CJ. It, I would. It was my two favorite teams trading with each other, which gives Simmons a new start with an elite creator uh, alongside him, and CJ an opportunity to be like uh, a more go-to guy, more like the, the go-to perimeter guy for a good team, while also not being the only like offensive force because he has that beat obviously. And like that seems like mm-hmm. an interesting option for both of them, but also like I know what Damon CJ's relationship is like. That would be sad for him to go that way, but also like it, it's mm-hmm. it's on the cards, and there are rumors about it for a reason. Um, I think right. the um, the uh, the Hornets kind of have a logjam at guard between Rosier. Um, who's the other guy? I keep forgetting his name. Not Devontae. Devontae Graham, Graham yeah. And then Lamelo oh. coming through, which means that like one of those guys will be either at a, a sixth man or on the move, and I think more likely on the move for assets. In which case, that like I think Philadelphia could very handily do with Terry Rozier. Um. <laughs> I had a moment where I knew this wasn't the thing you were gonna like. I knew this was nonsensical, <laughs> but in my brain, I was like, "No, they're not gonna say." Lamelo to the Sixers. No. The Hornets wouldn't give that no, up, right? God no, it would be terrible news. Lamelo's like potentially, <laughs> potentially in that like top tier of point guard operators with Trey and Luca. Like, no. yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, that would that would be a dumb trade, a very silly trade. <laughs> but also, like, no, like, like this is the level that Sixers are talking at because, like, talent wise, they're not far off the other big teams here. Like, they were indeed. An Embiid injury away from being like in a 50-50 coin flip series with Milwaukee for the Eastern Conference. Like, like we mm. shouldn't forget how good they are. Um, they really are good enough mm. to beat very good teams, but they're not good enough to beat very good teams when people can game plan and psych out two of their best plays from an entire series. Um, yeah, I also want to see what whether Toby is potentially getting moved at all. Like whether that's a, like a, a dump candidate. Um, the more he showed enough ability to dump Horford, we'll see whether that's a candidate for um, for Toby at some point. Um, I don't know if you saw the news about the Horford um, Kemba deal. Horford's going back to Boston. It's where he always belong. <laughs> um, Kemba Walker is like maybe his knees are just done, and that would be very sad. But again, like if if um if OKC are selling and they should be. Um, Kemba for like a season and a half wouldn't be awful. Yeah, I, it's weird. Yeah. Two years ago, Kemba would have been perfect. I would have loved Kemba instead of Toby as the third third banana. You genuinely hate to see a player go to the, the Thunder now. It's which is a bummer. It's really sad because they're actually kind of interesting as a team. 
like not not just because they have a ton of assets and could be interested in the future, but like SGA is genuinely incredible. Like watching highlights of mm. Shea is genuinely like he should be in like low all NBA conversation alongside people like Devin Booker. That's how good he is right now. And like I don't want to undersell. Like I think he is that good, and I think he could like I don't think he'll reach train Luca levels of pit point guard point guard um, like pick and roll operator but I think he could reach like what's the sort of tier down from that in terms of like effectiveness like we had a sort of classic era where it was like Lillard heading up a tier with Kemba and Conley in it and like that was a very rarefied air top 20 player in the leagues type stuff and I think Shea mm-hmm. could be a top mm-hmm. 20 player mm-hmm. in the league very soon yeah um which is which is cool it, um yeah I, you just hate you just hate to see it because you know that like they're gonna be presti has presti is going to draft at every single player in like 2023 like 2023 you're gonna look at the draft board and it's like oh all 30 first round picks belong to okc and if i had that i wouldn't be trying to win games you know yeah yeah <sighs> um but yeah like the exciting thing is that we we still have interesting basketball to watch because I think the Bucks probably relatively easily steamrolled the Hawks. I'm not discounting them because okay, 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 we have a series to talk about. That's a that's a next point. Here here's my thing. Mm-hmm. If you let's say I I just I just woke up from a coma today, yeah, and you showed me. Hey, the Hawks pulled off, you know, a surprise upset and in a seven game series, Milwaukee like toughed it out and beat Brooklyn. Um, who do you think's gonna win this? I would say Milwaukee. Like I think Milwaukee has this. I We watched that Milwaukee series. I fundamentally <laughs> I fundamentally don't believe in Mike Budenholzer. Yeah. And I fundamentally do believe in Trey Young and Nate McMillan. Yeah, I think that's like, entirely <laughs> legit. So the problem is like, okay, so what are the Hooks trying to do? They are trying to mm-hmm. get bigs in a bad positions in pick and rolls. And they're trying to get mm-hmm. um, secondary playmakers in like um, driving kick situations or with open shots. The Hooks... Sorry, the Bucks' defense is predicated on conceding some above-the-break threes to barricade the rim and defending pick-and-rolls with drop. Now, initially, that sounds very scary because Budenholz is wedded to that system and potentially yeah. Trey scorches Brook Lopez in the same way he, to some degree, scorched Joel Embiid. Like, just a parade of dunks mm-hmm. to the rim. So two things are different. Giannis is a help defender at a level above even Simmons. Like, Simmons is a good defender, but he was best used as a point-of-attack defender. And the Sixers really couldn't expect help from Toby. Like, that was not a thing they could get. And um, Giannis is one of the few, like, top-tier, like, I class him and AD and Draymond as, like, the best help defenders in the league. For Like, that's the top tier. They're pretty much in the league of their own. Which means that the parade of, of, like, lobs and dunks might be stopped there. And secondly, Drew Holiday is a point of attack defender that's comparable in quality to Ben Simmons. He's one of the very few. In which case, like, 
I can imagine ways that like either defending the pick and roll with Giannis involved in the action that might still be a bad move because Giannis cannot move his feet to match guards but Giannis is like mm-hmm. backline defender where um they're f- like they're able to sort of like corral the to corral the pick and roll with like a third man but scrambling around on defense like might be okay especially because like um Bogey, like Bogdan Bogdanovic, doesn't look right. He probably won't be right for the start of the next series. Mm-hmm. I like that. That is like the thing that torched the Sixers was an in, in part an inability to find a defensive scheme that worked. But like, I think they have marginally better tools to deal with it. I don't trust Budenholzer to figure out how to use them, but I trust that they're there. This is, yeah. So that, that's like one. This level. is the thing: is that is that. Nick Millen, I think, has proven himself to be very good, very adaptable. Yeah, um, he's he's found and, again. It's the, the sort of like playoff targeting matchup basketball. The like, uh, it's not the prettiest. It's not the most systemic, but whatever. But like, fundamentally, has got results every way through the, the through the series. And, and they've gone up against two good defensive teams. Yeah. Like, the Knicks and Philly are good defensive teams, and, and I think kind of Trey Young off. just yeah. has the... Trey Young just has the third eye where, after a game or two, like, whatever you're defending him with, I think he's gonna come up with something... I I don't think he's gonna, like, totally reinvent his game, but I think he's got just enough to keep you on your toes as a defensive team that, like, you can't just do the same shit over and over to Trey Young. And... and if there is something that I've gotten very accustomed to seeing the Bucks do, it's the same shit. Yeah. Over and over and over. <laughs> it's entirely and true. It's really Everything you're saying is right. I I I think if the Bucks win this, I'm not gonna be like, oh my god, great for them. How did they do it? But I just I I really don't trust this Bucks team. And I don't know. I I might pick the Hawks in this series just wow. because, like, I yeah. might pick the Hawks in this series just because, like, I have more faith in them to like. I don't think they're gonna win Game One. I think Game One, like Milwaukee, um, <laughs> is gonna win. It's the rest of the series that I'm as, like, oh, I don't as know. As they make adjustments, as they figure out how to target the drop coverage, as they figure out the rotation. Yeah, it's interesting. It's really going to be interesting. So the other thing, though, is like, Milwaukee just bully-balled their way through a Brooklyn series. So, like, the thing you're saying is entirely right, because one of the things people were screaming at them to do in the Brooklyn series was attack James Harden because he cannot move at all. He's a statue. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a grade two Achilles mm-hmm. tear or a sprain. Um, hamstring, hamstring sprain. That makes a lot more sense. He's a grade two hamstring sprain. He has no pop and no ability to move side to side. Target him. Mm. He will give up points. And they didn't because they just decided not to. (laughs) (laughs) Decided, no, we are stubbornly doing the thing we've been doing before, which works marginally worse. And that's the wonderful way to, you know, like embarrass yourself over the course of a series. Um, I'm not like convinced that um the like the the hawks have anything as exploitable as that but they might mm-hmm. and that trey young is very short 
<laughs> because if you put like Giannis in a like Giannis handling with a shooter and try and ask Trey Young to like close out on whoever he's guarding or force himself to switch onto a big post presence like Giannis, he is going to get trampled on. Or you you do like off ball switching action to get Middleton or Drew Holiday on him and like back him into the fucking ground. Like he mm-hmm. should be exploitable. And the fact that he wasn't in the Sixers series was entirely predictable because the Sixers have no one to like force switching actions to force dribble penetration that like demands the Hawks really switch aggressively. Um, the, the, he, that wasn't a concern. It was, they could play very conventionally against the Sixers and defend okay. I'm not sure that's the true against the Bucks offense if they figure out ways to get scorers, particularly wing scorers, onto Trey. I think that could be a gross mismatch that they can't deal with. I also think that like mm-hmm. the thing that was notable when um when particularly DeAndre Hunter went out of the series um earlier on in the playoffs, like John Collins is okay. John Collins probably can't deal with Giannis. Um in which case that like if Giannis can figure anything out he might have like a really good like route to success over the next little while. Um, very few of the teams left in this playoff series, in this playoffs, the whole system, can cope with Giannis one on one. KD did an admirable job. Um, ben Simmons probably could have done an admirable job. Um, Paul George maybe Kawhi can. Um, Mikael Bridges maybe I'd trust to. But there's that's like a very short list. Um, yeah, you really, really are going to find it very, very hard. I, I think the problem the the Hawks have isn't a, a coaching one. It isn't a scheme one. It's a talent and size and matchup one, and that might be too fundamental an issue to overcome with intelligent coaching. It's not insurmountable because that's a very similar problem they overcame in the Sixers series. It's just the Sixers had like the wrong end of the matchup problem as well. Sorry to be cleared, like. They, they overcame a talent disparity, but a matchup advantage. This time, I think they've got like a much more even matchup split that I'd shade to the Bucks and a even worse talent disparity. Um, and like, mm-hmm. I agree. I trust Trey to carve up the drop coverage and I trust McMillan to put him in good positions. But fundamentally, I think the Bucks might just out-talent them in a way that's very blunt instrument, in a way that's very ugly, in a way that doesn't actually do the things that exploit the things they're good at. But I do kind of shade it to the Bucks. The the only other thing I'll say here is that um, I so um, I just had this stat up in front of me in the playoffs. Trey has been averaging about nine free throw attempts a game on nearly ninety percent shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think against the Bucks, like that free throw attempts per game is gonna go up even more. I think. They're, I think he's very good at drawing fouls, and I think he's going to be very good at it against this team in particular. Yeah, it, again, you know? it's interesting. Like, Brook Lopez is a very good defender. He's also a fairly disciplined one, and the Sixers fall all their good defensively. Like, Simmons seemed reasonably okay with foul trouble, but, like, wasn't great. Uh, Seth Curry was tanning out fouls pretty readily because he was just at a physical disadvantage, and Matisse Thybul is horrendously ill-disciplined. For as good a defender as he is, he was, like, bad at offering up fouls like the thing that killed the game to be clear was him giving up the three shot foul um on Kevin Mm -hmm. Hurt um so like I think 
it's it's comparable I'm not sure again I think a lot depends on exactly how the Bucks choose to defend the pick and roll because like it's coming we know it's coming we just don't know how Milwaukee's going to adjust because it's not the situation where mm-hmm. they can just like stick good player like PJ Tucker on an elite perimeter creator like Kevin Durant and hope that the rest of the defense sort of stays at home and deals with the, the like the periphery stuff they have like an action that is going to carve them up if they don't figure out an answer to it and I'm not sure that they're going to initially have an answer for it um in, in which case, like, the fact that, like, it's so obvious how they're going to be attacked makes me wonder slightly more if the coaching problems start earlier. Like, Milwaukee lose a home game early um, rather than, like, blast the doors off in the first couple games. I wonder if it's mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, we can't just chance this. We actually do need to... um to like figure out what we're doing because we've oh no suddenly lost the first game because Trey Young's gone off and Clint Capella just dunked on our heads seven times. <sighs> um, yeah, fascinating series because one team is going to be riding very high and the other is just sort of like gone through um gone through the fucking ringer. Um, but yeah, who are your favorites for the title right now? Who do you think the most likely title? Uh, maybe the Suns. Yes. The Suns seem like the most complete I think team right the, now. The Suns, yeah, I feel like the Suns feel like the most cohesive team. I feel like um, they've been, I, I won't say they've been totally unaffected by injuries, but like they've had some lucky breaks where like even with Chris Paul's shoulder stuff, he's still been pretty effective and... Honestly, like, they won a game while he was still out in the COVID protocol, and, um, like, honestly, like, being out with the COVID protocol stuff might help give his shoulder time to get back to where it needs to be. Um, like, I just feel like... I feel like Phoenix is in a pretty good spot. I... I I don't... I don't think it's guaranteed. Like, I think the Clippers could pull this out. I think... I think... Phoenix would, like, struggle against Milwaukee. I think Phoenix would, uh, like, Atlanta would make a series of it. Like, I think I think Phoenix has two, like, challenging series ahead of them. I just feel like I, the, I, I trust yeah, them. I, I trust like they that the, they've the, got the, enough different things that yeah, they can do. Exactly that. And good star players to, like, come through in the really clutch moments that they need. Um, no yeah. team left has multiple elite creators. I think that's big. Um, I yes. don't class... I think Milwaukee's got three half elite creators, none of whom are particularly playoff proven. Um, Giannis has the capacity to be that if he figures his game out, but he hasn't figured his game out. Drew is not an elite if- creator. That's not his game. He's great at it. He can do that to some extent. He's not that. Middleton is very similar. Um the Ka- Kawhi is not is not this elite creator you're talking no, Kawhi, about. But if Kawhi the, was still in, I would trust. Kawhi. Yeah, no. If Kawhi was healthy, he would be an elite creator. He's he was that for the the. That's how um, the Raptors won a title. Is Kawhi was right. single handedly like I go go back to the we we remember the Sixers Raptors series semis Eastern Conference semis from a couple of years ago for that mm-hmm. bucket that killed it 
the the bottom line though was that like Kawhi was playing out of his skin as a creator. Like I think he is that. Like, yeah, he is an absolutely elite creator if he was healthy. I don't think hey, this is the this is the thing is that like you got Game Seven of Dallas Kawhi who is gonna do that he's just gonna yeah. be like i'm gonna dribble it up every time and i'm gonna just I'm gonna, like fucking torch yeah, you every single walk possession into threes and walk into contested mid-ranges that are gonna drain at 55 60 percent and that's that's not who Kawhi is gonna be every night it, ca- it can't um, be but it, and I don't it think can't he... be if he's injured it simply cannot be um yeah. in which case like and and yeah he might have an acl like he might just be not in the series we might not see Kawhi play again until 2020, like 2022-2023 yeah. season. And again, the like, can, that can might schedule, happen. like, we might not see him until, like, midway through, like, all-star break 2022-3 season. Yeah. Um, we have no idea on that one, though. But, like, no other team has the ability to create shots in multiple ways, has the ability to, like, maintain at least one elite creator on the floor at any time, and has creators who can, like, again... The, the Phoenix Suns are very good at matchup hunting. They are very good at getting the right player on the right mm-hmm. on the right creator to get torched, <laughs> and that's a thing that no mm-hmm. other team in this bar, maybe the, the the like the Hawks are able to do. Like the Clippers aren't doing it because they don't have the players to do the torching. They just have to rely on like being one on one and like like that's was easy enough against a very limited defensively Utah team, and the Bucks can't do it because they have the most pig headed coaching in the fucking league. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, the, I'm talking myself into and, and Atlanta is just fundamentally not as talented as they Phoenix just don't is. have a second creator. They don't have a second guy who, with a ball in his hands, can torch a good defender. They have Trey who can do that. They have like Boggy who's injured, who is not that even when he's healthy. Um, so yeah, um, the, I'm the more I'm thinking about this, the more I'm talking myself into a Phoenix Milwaukee series, like shading phoenix right now but we're gonna see a whole lot that we're gonna see a whole other like set of these teams in the playoffs and we don't even know who's gonna make it in the yes. end yes we will come back to that we, we got a long way till there phoenix is up one nothing and the atlanta series isn't gonna start for yeah, two days exactly. so we got time uh we've been recording for three hours no way we've been recording for three hours we've been recording for three hours Okay, uh, I've got work in just over an hour, like an hour. And yeah, 10, you should. You, so should, I should, you probably... should go like chill out and not do anything and like uh, rest, and then go to work and not yeah do this anymore. <laughs> um, I know I have to like edit out like the two bathroom breaks we took, but it's really tempting to just like not put any music on it, just like upload this today and just like let people see there's three hours and half of it's basketball talk. i'm not even stopping you like really only half of it is basketball only talk. half of it that's basketball the impressive talk. part a good hour of that was skyrim <laughs> I, mean, I don't know about hour but you know um hey this is this is who we are we are not apologizing um yeah this was super super fun but you should probably end <laughs> Yeah, uh, people know where to find you on the internet, right? Is this? Oh, this is going the main feed. So this is going. This is going on the main feed. So I'll plug a couple things because I've got some new podcasts that I don't think I've plugged on here oh, yeah. yet. Um, you find me at autumnal underscore coffee on Twitter. All my podcasts at exportodd.io. 
Um, I've got two, one new podcast and one new-ish podcast, but I'll, I'll plug both of them. Um, Ornate Stairwells, the new-ish podcast, um, we, Nia and I watch a movie and talk about it. It's been really fucking good. I, I, we just did an episode on Rebels of the Neon God, which I cannot recommend enough, and our next episode is going to be Mulholland Drive. Um, new podcast uh gotham city limits if you like batman the animated series um uh, i've got great news for you we're doing a podcast about it it's me and m it's our follow-up to and then an aeroplane uh we just love batman and we're gonna talk about him yeah I, um, I lo- it'll be weekly it'll be really short podcasts because you know it's a 20 minute cartoon yeah. yeah i i learned that your first exposure to batman was arkham asylum which is wild to me given how knowledgeable and in it you seem which is Cool. The, so the thing is that I have been listening to a uh, War Rocket Ajax uh, for seven years, which is not a Batman podcast, but is hosted by probably the world's foremost Batman scholar. Oh wow! <laughs> um, I thought I, so. I thought you were going to come up with like some neckbeard who's into Batman, but no, that is legit. Okay, fine. That's a, that's I mean, he's not hes not a scholar. It's just that he's read every single Batman I know how comic obsessives work, like, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah uh, he, he, you pick up some things. He's not quite a neckbeard, but like, I wouldn't begrudge you calling him a neckbeard. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Let's not get into fucking bullshit slurs now. Christ. Um, we, we were doing so well. We were doing so well. Um... <laughs> But yeah, the um, the that was wild to me because I also played Arkham Asylum and like also really liked it. But also, I kind of like the Chris Nolan movies, and that's also the version of Batman that I have in my head when I think about Batman. But I also have the comic of the Something of Owls, Court of Owls, Court of Owls, um, sitting on my shelf that I haven't still haven't read that I bought when I visited you in person and we hired a comic shop. And I said, "What's the right way to get oh, into right. Batman?" And you said Court of Owls. So I've got Court of Owls sitting on my shelf. I, I would, I stand by that. that I don't know. Good show. I, I stand by um, that. But yeah. yeah, so this is this is a thing. Like, uh, one, me pitching, next time you do comic stuff and want to talk to a beginner and decide to read Court of Owls, get me on there. <laughs> uh, that'll happen in months, I'm sure. But, you know. Um, but also, Batman. It's pretty cool. So I had the... I love I that I had guy. the pet theory that I spaffed into your DMs that I think I should share with the podcast, which is that, like, the there is, like, a species type to different kinds of media that, um, that like, th- every story is really that story, but regurgitated in different ways. And that, like, the sense mm-hmm. having really grown up on Arkham Asylum and then Chris Nolan movies... And then also just like wandering face first into the first episode of um, the, anima- the animated series. Every Batman yeah. is secretly about uh, identity and misidentification, about impersonation and trust with law enforcement. Um, like that's really what every Batman is about. It's not about the detective stuff. The detective stuff's cool and that's the thing that like gives it the engine. But the like what it's about, the thematic content is all... Um, is Batman really needed? Is he really good? Is he the right person that we think he is? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Is he being impersonated? Is he being supplanted by other forces? Blah, 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 blah. Um, in the same way that, like, you've, I've fucking, I'm reading theory books that are like, well, this 
the Hemingway book is actually about gender and castration. And like, you just read it and just like, oh God, this book is all about gender bullshit. Um, you read um, Batman and it's all about um, identity and impersonation bullshit. And that is just like a thing that I'm going to like keep in the back of my head is like, do they know who Batman is in this moment in time? In which case, that's a very good thing to know about the creators is they've got a thesis about like what drives Batman as an interesting character and can can follow it on. You should read Batman Year One, <laughs> uh, which is uh, very much a show oh, about, the, uh, very much this a comic is one about of the Frank Miller ones, right? Yeah. Fun. Um, uh, awesome. Uh, yeah, all right, this is this is exciting. I, I might have to report in on this at some other point. Um, but hey, between Year <laughs> One and Court of Owls, I've got places to start, along with this, it's a cool, cool comic. It's a good comic. Where can people find you uh, online? You can find me on Twitter, at Regression. I'll probably be posting about marks. That seems to be the thing I do at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. That's about it. Uh, I've been very slow with editing other things because it's hard. Hard to edit things in good time, whatever. Uh, you don't need to hear me vent about how difficult it is to wrangle the most stupid to edit podcast in the world because I decide to produce the stupid to edit podcast in the world. Mm-hmm. It happens sometimes. Um, that's about it for me. Do you want to fuck off and go not have him sat on a recording thing for three hours and ten minutes? I'm probably going to just go get in my car and go get some caffeine at work and uh, start working. Damn. <laughs> Damn. Podcast of life. Uh, take it easy and we'll be back sooner or later with an actual episode of the normal podcast we do (laughs) that might um, the reason I was so desperate to record today is that I'm going on a vacation in the very near future so I will I will try I've got two days off this week and then I'm working a seven day stretch before my vacation so um I'm get- we'll try to make hot singles happen, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so I mean, I'm also potentially out of town for a little while and away from recording stuff. So when are you... When are your days off this week? I get... I get... Uh, so I have Wednesday, Thursday off. I've already got... Everything piled up. Two piled podcasts on both those yeah, days. got so. it. That's not happening. In which case, I might not be available until July 7th. So... I'm not available till July 9th, basically. Okay, done. So. Fine, then we just break and come back with that stuff. The end of, end of that yep. before we go after. Cool. Yeah. Nice. All right. Uh, goodbye, everybody. I'm hitting stop on this recording. Bye. You take too long. Oh, yeah. I'm crazy. I'm hey, hey, hey. I can never break bread with you birds Cause I'm used to taking less in the first place It ain't really about the lyrics or the wordplay Boy, there's something for my spirit and my worst days, nigga Looking in the mirror be the worst thing Bulky black body with a shirt hang Axel blessings from the water when the church can't give it to me It's getting cold, I need a thicker hoodie I knew the champ wouldn't last through the winter, eh? You will lose it, get your ass out of winner's place How you trying to 
he ain't playing with your dinner plate Under the sun, only the black don't disintegrate And I ain't fancy, I'm attached to that nigga taste Niggas dancing for the bag and never hit the bang I see you reaching for that dab, you never hit my hand And every nigga I told link, he never link me up But it's always in that circle that you bring me up My rap's a lot of fucking topics I ain't mean to touch I need to sleep some more, cause I don't dream enough And this creaky floor, you can see the dust I just need a swat, and now I need your bugs And now I mean to cry, I'm just feeling numb I know success is near, and I can hear it come I know depression here, and I'm scared to jump And I'm Heart of my ego. I used to focus, made a lot of niggas B roll. Going through a hefty mission, most these niggas cheat code. Most niggas stutter in the game, but make the free throw. Rolling through the lower east, smelling like the weed smoke. Raised by a black woman, lover, so my knees know. Product get a cheap, bro. Some I had the money when a nigga had to eat, though. Fuck the pigs, here's a dig, you can deep, though. Here's his kid with his chips in casino. We was trying to get it, didn't matter if it's Legal, awkward in the studio Bars really gonna break the ice If it's key fall I'm running in the same direction That the tree grow It's nothing Whatever time period that is, you heard 